Jesse, last week had me so frustrated with Sharon. What do you have for me this week? Oh, if you are frustrated with Sharon, you're going to be majorly frustrated with exotic dancing showgirl Marjorie, who charms her way into the hearts of many, including her seven husbands. But for one, the cost of her love will be death and dismemberment. I'm Andy Set. I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder. This is a podcast that is right at the intersection of human interest and true crime. We try to tell stories that are all about ordinary people driven to extraordinary extremes by passion, lust, love, and greed. Okay, I really, really need to hear about these seven husbands. Uh, I thought you topped the cake last week at, what was it, five? (laughs) I think she had four. (laughs) Four, five, uh, seven really, really does me in. But first, just a couple of quick reminders. Um, firstly, you can find us at Love Murder Pod on Twitter and Instagram or lovemurder.love on the web. Absolutely loved seeing all of your reactions and shares each week, so keep it up. Totally. And we also want to thank everyone who has taken the time to rate and review the show. If you haven't yet, please do. It makes a huge difference for helping new people discover Love Murder, and we really appreciate it. It's super helpful. Lastly, speaking of discovering great content, uh, we just wanted to quickly shout out our new friends at That's So Fucked Up podcast. They tell great true crime stories from past and present, and I'm obsessed with how they have done their Instagram. It's super well-branded and all original content. Uh, also, Jesse, their opening song is amazing. It's super original oh and God, unique. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's so cool. Um, they've got some fun music that goes under how they talk as well throughout the whole intro it's it's super fun uh listening to their podcast literally made me feel like i was just having a chat with my old film friends at bu i'm very into all things cult related so if you are too you should definitely check them out at that's so fucked up podcast oh yay i'll definitely check out the last episode because i am also into culty things Finally, if you have any case ideas for us, email us at lovers at lovemurder.love. We've got some listener recommended cases coming up and they are insane. So I can't wait to hear more about what you guys think would be interesting. Perfect. All right. Uh, Okay, Andy, on to our main story. How much would I have to pay you to get married seven times? Oh my God, Jesse, you're lucky that it happened once. (laughs) Yeah, I'm shocked I got you and Dan to the altar, actually. (laughs) Um, Okay, so this is going to be a wild story, and it does get a little lengthy. I mean, with seven husbands, it'll do that to you. So we are going to jump right in. Yes. Okay. So the sources I used were Dancing with Death by Shanna Hogan, who is amazing. I highly recommend her true crime books. I just ordered a couple more, so I'm sure you'll be hearing more from her in the future. And I also watched a 48 Hours called Diary of a Showgirl. Under the burning sun of an October 2004 afternoon in the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, a transient man named Robert spotted the perfect place to rest his bones, crack open a Bud Light, and enjoy a smoke. He sat down on a dusty futon mattress not far from the gas station where he had purchased the beer. Nearby sat an old rug wrapped around a mystery object. Robert, beer and cigarette in hand, went to inspect, uncovering a large plastic storage bin. 
Excited at the prospect of finding something of value, he cut away at the tape that sealed the bin with a wedge of broken glass, peeling off the severed tape and wrenching the bin open. Underneath a layer of garbage bags and plastic sheeting, a foul odor, putrid and strong, permeated his nostrils. Then, as his eyes focused on the contents of the bin, his cigarette fell from his lips and he ran away in terror. When the cops arrived on the scene, he was still visibly shaking, his voice trembling as he said, I saw the belt buckle and the jeans, and the belly was hairy. That's how I realized. I know, this is so brutal. Poor Robert. (laughs) That's how I realized it was human. There was a belly button. Gross. I know. Woof. For real. What Robert uncovered on this fateful October afternoon was the dismembered torso and only the torso of a white man in his 40s. The police were left pondering who could do this to a fellow human and why. Drug deal gone wrong? Mafia? Crazed, deranged killer? In all of their musings, they wouldn't have imagined the glamorous, exotic beauty at the center of the crime, nor the incredible story that would take them from the seedy strip clubs to the stages of Las Vegas, to Motley Crue music videos and millionaire yachts, and then finally back to the desolate desert of Phoenix where one poor man met his fate. Okay, Jesse, is this like a container store plastic bin? Yes. this is ex- It's like a Rubbermaid storage <laughs> bin. Oh, that's nasty. Exactly. So it's like 55 <laughs> gallons. So I think it's the same size like that I keep my Christmas decorations and Halloween decorations in in Whoa. the basement. Yeah. Yeah. So something you could go and buy at like a Lowe's or a Home Depot or a Target even. I can't. That Oof. makes a whole new twist on, on the container store now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so two days after the discovery of the body, the medical examiner – performed the autopsy, and logged the contents of the bin. So the torso wasn't the only thing found in the bin. Okay. Uh, at the bottom of the bin, there was a thirty-eight caliber bullet um, and shoved in the jeans pocket because the, the torso was basically cut from, you know, obviously it was decapitated. So he had no head or arms and he was decapitated just above the knees. So Ooh. he was wearing – like jean shorts, but they were probably jeans at some point. Dismemberment jorts, essentially. <laughs> That's rough. It's a rough way so to start brutal. the day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh God, that poor guy too. Also, like you, you when you were living, you were wearing just normal jeans, and then committed a fashion sin. <laughs> normal day turned turned fashionably wrong. Terrible. Um, so shoved in the jeans pockets was four hundred and fifty nine dollars in mixed bills, a small bottle of contact lens solution, and a key ring with eleven keys. So this seems interesting because four hundred and fifty nine dollars is a lot of money for the killer to miss, and it's a lot of cash to have in your pocket. Yeah, totally, totally, <laughs> mixed totally. Bills. Mm-hmm. The medical examiner determined that the corpse had been frozen and then thawed and dismembered with an electric saw. The items from the bin were released into the custody of lead homicide detective David Barnes. David Barnes began cataloging the evidence. And this is the truly grossest way I can imagine cataloging this evidence because it had been out in the desert and it's a dismembered corpse. So you can imagine like what was congealing on the bottom of that bin. I can't. 
Andy's just vociferously shaking her head right now. <laughs> I cannot actually. Um, so he is actually having to sift through this congealed goo of blood, fat, and bone fragments. No one should have to do that. I know. And then he's like going through it and hanging the items up so that they can dry. So yeah, so this is going to be quite the task. A, it's disgusting. B, the identification of the body would be difficult one because they don't have the usual helpful body parts like face or teeth or fingers. You think? Yeah. So it's hard to just, you know, I don't know what a lot of people's torsos look like. No. No. We usually wear shirts. So the one good piece of news was that on the bin was a UPC sticker, which could prove instrumental in tracing who purchased the victim's plastic coffin. While logging the evidence, Detective Barnes received an urgent page. The night supervisor required him to move his stanky murder-ridden evidence down to the basement because the stench was making officers in the adjacent office sick. I don't blame how him. bad it was. I know. So <laughs> Get your, your murder goo evidence out of here. This instruction inadvertently broke open the case when Barnes ran into a cop assigned to the missing person's uh, situation downstairs. So he asked uh, the, the new cop was like, what do you know about the Vic? And Barnes was like, not much. All we know is that the torso is of definitely a white man, possibly in his 40s. And so the um, missing persons cop was like, really? I'm assisting on this missing persons case involving a white male in the same age range. So the missing person was a wealthy 45-year-old arts dealer named Jay Orban. His wife, Marjorie, had reported him missing after he failed to return home from a business trip. Her callous behavior, lack of concern, and recent approach to liquidating his assets in the weeks before and since his disappearance had thrown up about a million red flags to the investigating officers, and they suspected foul play. Yeah, I mean, she was liquidating before he went missing. That's Mm -hmm. So she had been using his credit cards and also going into his bank accounts and draining them of money. Yikes. So not a good look, Marjorie. No. Margie. Even more <laughs> Margie. Even more suspicious is that they discovered she had been having an affair with another man, at least one other man, and had been he had been living at the Orban's house while Jay was away on business. <sighs> so Marjorie is a major suspect. The missing persons detective filled Barnes in on what he knew of the case, including that they had located the missing man's Ford Bronco that very morning. Barnes told him he had recovered the keys with the torso. They brought the keys to the Bronco and miraculously the keys unlocked the car and started the ignition. Crazy. I know. It's unbelievable. So they found the Bronco for a missing persons case that morning. Then Homicide finds the torso with the keys in the pocket and they literally match them that evening. It's crazy that they went through all the work to dismember someone but couldn't remember to take out the keys or the money or the you know what I, I mean know. it's like it's, I guess maybe if you've just killed somebody you're not really thinking straight obviously some, some <laughs> screws loose but <laughs> there's some screws loose clearly it seems crazy to me that they wouldn't you know dispose of all the many pieces of evidence in different places yeah it's just messy with that stroke of luck the missing person case of J. Michael Orban officially became a homicide case and thus began a windy drama-filled path to justice for Jay. Jay Orban was 45 the day he was murdered 45 exactly what he was murdered on his birthday Mm-hmm. He was murdered on September 8th, 2004. His 
birthday. Rough. Yeah. So, you guys, if any of you are feeling really sad about your COVID birthdays, <laughs> at least you were not dismembered into jorts. In a plastic bin. Yeah. He was known as a kind, compassionate businessman who loved his family. His only flaw was a taste for extraordinarily beautiful women, which I think is a common flaw shared among men and women alike. For sure. This is one, though, however, that would become this particular man's undoing. He was born in 1959 to loving parents Jake and Joanna Orban. He had an older brother named Jake Jr. and a happy childhood despite the family's modest means. The family had moved to Phoenix when Jake Jr. was a small boy, so he had severe asthma and he was having a hard time in cold Pennsylvania. So the doctor recommended that they move to a hot, dry climate uh, similar to Phoenix, Arizona. And his parents were just so loving and caring that without having jobs or anything, they just moved directly to Phoenix, Arizona. That's so cute. Later, isn't that cute? Later, the doctor was like, I meant like anywhere dry and hot. Like you could have moved to California, Nevada. <laughs> and they just were so hungry to do something well for their kid that they just went to the first place he suggested. So, so cute. this is an example of really great parents who are constantly putting their boys first. So they're super cute. Jay played Little League and he cheered for the Pittsburgh Steelers his whole life and eventually grew into a tall, husky man who was friendly, ambitious, and outgoing. He was six feet tall, roughly 250 pounds, and what people would call a natural salesman. He started a successful landscaping business with his brother straight out of high school, and eventually when his brother moved to San Diego for his dream job, Jay used the landscaping profits to invest in a Phoenix comedy club called Chuckles, where he befriended a then-up-and-coming comic named Richard Belzer, who went on to fame as Sergeant John Munch on Law & Order SVU. You stop it. I know. I love Munch. This was probably not an important detail about Jay's life, but I thought it was so cool. <laughs> it's important for us. <laughs> exactly. He eventually found his way into Native American art and jewelry sales, launching a business called Jayhawk Trader, which sold goods at swap meets across the country. Within a few short years, he was making a high six figures. Whoa. Yeah, so he's selling like high-end turquoise and silver type jewelry, but he was also selling Native American art, you know, dolls, anything that was important to Native American people. Oh, cool. um, yeah, so he was doing that and he was selling it wholesale. So he had – he sold a lot as swap meets, but then he also sold wholesale to different um, dealers throughout the southern United States mostly. Cool. So he's like me. Yes, he's like you on the road <laughs> doing your thing. <laughs> in what was usually a cutthroat business, Jay made friends wherever he went. He was down to earth, kind, and unbelievably hardworking. He lived on the road, selling his wares, only coming home to inventory and fill orders. Family friend Carol Rita said about Jay, he was the person who, when he entered a room, you knew it. He had this loud, booming voice. I just love that about him. He was always happy, always smiling. He was just so full of life. So Jay had a hardcore reputation as being a work hard, play hard guy. Um, he was a real lover of fun and also an unconventional ladies man. So he was cute, but he wasn't like the super traditionally good looking type of guy, but he made up for it with charisma and confidence. And he especially loved the very stereotypically like 80s, early 90s good looking women, like the kind with like the really deep tans and the bleach blonde hair, yeah. the tiny waist and the big fake boobies. Yep. Yep. Those, that those. was his look. 
So yes, the types of stunning women you would usually find working at strip clubs. Of course. So yeah, that was like his jam. So throughout the 80s and 90s, he was a big time regular at Phoenix strip clubs, including Bourbon Street Circus, Babes Cabaret, and Skin Cabaret. In 1984, he bought a South Phoenix home with a pool and volleyball court in the backyard. And he became famous for these twice-a-year volleyball parties that he was throwing, and they would be frequented by all of the girls from the strip clubs wearing bikinis and just partying it up. So his brother actually came to visit one of these parties, and he was like, whoa, my baby brother's doing well for himself. He's over here like a mini Hugh Hefner. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) South Phoenix's mini Hugh Hefner over here. (laughs) But despite, like, hanging out with all of the girls who worked at the club, they all reported that he was always kind and respectful, and he often lended money or a place to stay to any of the girls if they were in trouble. So he was was handling himself very well. He had, like, a good reputation at the clubs. He wasn't a creeper. That's cool. Yeah. So he was a happy-go-lucky businessman who was content with his bachelor lifestyle until the day when he had a chance encounter with a beguiling blonde dancer named Marjorie Marquis, and he fell head over heels in love. Is that her stage so, name? Uh, that was actually her real name, yes. but it's it's one of her many, many last names, as we will see. Whoa. Yeah, but that was a real name that she had. It was not made up. I mean, it couldn't get better than Marjorie Marquis, though. No, for a showgirl? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about Marjorie. So this is by far the most interesting, messiest bitch we've ever covered. (laughs) Like, Sharon, step aside. You've got some competition over here with good old Marjorie. Um, Marjorie Ann Crow was born on October 29th, 1961 in Miami, Florida. She had an older sister, Colleen, and shortly after Marjorie was born, her mother, Janelle, divorced her father and remarried a sweet air conditioning repairman named Peter, who the girls would always consider their father. They relocated to Altamont Springs, Florida, and had a pretty happy middle-class upbringing. Janelle worked as a kindergarten teacher, and she also worked a second job to pay for her daughter's piano and ballet lessons. From the age of six, Marjorie danced. She was a really, really good dancer. Um... And she was classically trained in ballet, tap, and jazz, and endeavored to become a professional dancer and choreographer. So Marjorie was a bright, intelligent child who grew into a stunning young woman. So Marjorie is very tall, very thin. She She's like described as being at 1.58 and 120 pounds with natural blonde hair and big almond-shaped brown eyes. So pretty much so, me. Yeah, <laughs> she's like – Yeah, when you see the pictures, you might not. Um, if you had a, a very trashy aunt who like lived during the 80s and bouffanted her hair and got breast implants, I could definitely see a familial relation. Okay, got it, got it. I think we should, you know, take your picture and just like transpose a bouffant 80s hairdo <laughs> over you and see how close you guys look alike. <laughs> Twins. Twinsies. <laughs> yeah, so she's – I think before she got some plastic surgery done, um, she was very naturally good-looking. So you guys probably looked more alike when she was younger. She just has a similar build, I guess. Yes. She's very tall and lean and naturally Pre- so. hmm So yeah, she has the body type of like an 80s, 90s computer-generated showgirl. 
From 15 to 18, she balanced her school responsibilities with hostessing at a steakhouse and dancing part-time on the weekends at a dinner theater called Once Upon a Stage. At 17, she learned some devastating news from her gynecologist. During a routine visit, her doctor discovered she had severe endometriosis, which, in case you guys don't know, it's a condition in which the tissue that normally lines the uterus grows in other places, and that can result in intense pain and irregular bleeding. Not fun for women. Yeah, no. So many women Uh, have it, but not that severe. Exactly. This was a particularly severe case. Um, Her condition was so bad, the doctor told her that she was infertile. Oh, no. That's hard to take at that age. It's it's really crazy. I mean, 17 is so early to find out that you may not have children for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's way too young. That's crazy. I mean, it's so young. You don't know what you want out of life. And I think everyone kind of assumes at some point, maybe I'll have a family, you know? So she was completely devastated by this news, and it ended up changing Marjorie's whole outlook on life. Um, This is from Dancing with Death. After that, I think the decisions I made in my life were pretty much that I was really living as though the only person I was ever going to have to be responsible for is myself, Marjorie said years later. So if someone came into my life and I had feelings for them, I went into it with my whole heart, maybe too fully, maybe too often. (laughs) Yeah, you think seven husbands. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you don't need to marry everyone. No, no. Maybe she didn't believe in sex outside of marriage. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> um, one such love affair was a man named Mitchell Marquis. Ding, ding, ding. There's love the Marquis. A motorcycle shop owner, 10 years her senior, and the man who would ultimately become husband number one. She met him in her late teens, and after high school graduation in 1980, she moved with him to Orlando, where she took a job as a cocktail waitress and dancer at a massive entertainment venue called Church Street Station. So this place sounds super duper fun. So this is in Orlando, and I think that at this time, they were really building up these kind of entertainment multiplexes. Yeah. So this isn't Disneyland, so it's not for kids. This isn't like strip clubs or anything. It was really like a place that had clubs for adults to go to. So it was a venue that housed four separate clubs, each with a different theme. At the time, there was a disco bar, a Dixieland jazz club, and the Cheyenne Saloon, which was a huge country bar designed like a southern opera house. And that's where Marjorie worked. She worked at the Cheyenne Saloon. It sounds kind of fun, actually. Yeah. I want to go to like a major country bar and drink terrible frozen drinks or cheap beer and date like country line dance. Yeah, like an old saloon. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like a super fun place. For the next five years, she worked various jobs at Church Street Station, and it was there that she would meet a wealthy restaurateur named Michael J. Peter, a man who would end up factoring in very largely in her life story. Hmm. And so let's talk about Michael J. Peter. <laughs> Marjorie is a trip, but she's ultimately not a great person. And I don't, I can't speak for Michael J. Peter's characters, but he is probably one of my favorite people in this story because he's just a wild individual. Okay. Um, so he's a really fascinating cat. He's standing at only 5'6", but he's super handsome with a swarthy complexion and thick, dark hair, and he became known as the Strip Club King of Florida. What a title. He, yeah. <laughs> he really does well for himself in this story, you'll see. Michael grew up in Ithaca, New York, where he attended the prestigious Cornell University School of Hotel Administration, dropping out just a semester shy of a master's degree. 
1973, he moved to Orlando, where he boosted the sales of a fancy country club by outfitting the waitresses in low-cut blouses and hiring beautiful women to model bikinis during lunchtime. Oh my god, I bet all of the housewives of that country club were losing their shit. I know. I think they probably were not happy. But in five months, he took the membership from 88 people to 700 members. So management liked the money, but not the methods. They saw him as a sleazy con man with low class, and he was fired in six months after bringing in all that business. That's so shady because they probably kept the business. I, I bet they kept some of his habits yeah. and just fired him. Oh, poor Michael J. Peter. But don't worry about him because he gets his. So now he's unemployed. He found himself driving down Orange Blossom Lane, which is Orlando's red light district. And he noticed that even though it's only 3 p.m., the parking lot of a seedy strip dive was full of luxury cars. The bar was called The Booby Trap. Oh my god, I love that name. And was decidedly low rent. Yeah, I love the name, the booby trap. Remember we talked about opening a bar called the clam trap? Clam trap. <laughs> clam trap. <laughs> like a, a raw seafood bar. Get your head out of the gutter, guys. <laughs> On a beach. On a beach, yeah. Even though the dancers were rude and unattractive and drunk and sloppy to boot, there were still professional businessmen in suits shelling out tons of money. So he's like, huh. He has this flash of inspiration. Why not create a chain of super high-end strip clubs? And he doesn't like the the branding of strip club because it sounds so seedy. He's like, why don't I make some really cool up upper-class strip clubs and call them gentlemen's clubs? Oh, no. Yeah. So he is the one he, who takes responsibility for the word gentleman's club. I cannot tell you whether that's actually true, but he takes responsibility for it. So he bought his first cheap bar for $13,000 and renamed it the, T-H-E-E, dollhouse and completely remodeled it. It was well-lit, carpeted, and painted pink and purple. The bouncers wore tuxedos with bow ties and the dancers were required to take etiquette lessons wear ball gowns, and have their hair and makeup professionally done. Wait, ball gowns? Yeah, I guess if they weren't actively stripping, they had to wear fancy ball gowns around the floor. But would be so awesome if they were like breakaway ball gowns, like <laughs> Vel- <laughs> Velcro. Or those snaps, like those Adidas snap pants, <laughs> just snap ball gowns. That would be ball a sight. Gowns. So basically this was very high-end in comparison to some of the other clubs. Within six months, the club was grossing $65,000 a week. Adjusted for inflation, that would be $393,000 in 2020 money. A week? A week. Whoa. That seems insane. Yeah. By the time he was only 30, Michael already had a budding strip club empire. By 1980, he was a legend who owned Topless Disney – Michael often held business meetings at Church Street Station, and as a VIP, he frequently had Marjorie as his server because she was one of the top employees. They began a great friendship despite their 15-year age gap, and eventually it would blossom into a romance. Meanwhile, Marjorie was getting recognized for her choreographing skills and was at 19 promoted to manager of the Cheyenne Saloon. So Marjorie's doing well for herself. Mm-hmm. Before the age of 34, Marjorie would marry seven times. 34? 34. She was so young. Her love life was chaotic and impulsive. She never left one man without having another lined up, and many of her liaisons overlapped. 
So Marjorie had a stunning face and body, but what really made men fall for her was an innate ability to make others feel special, attractive, and desired. So I think that's really what drew people to her. It was an addictive and charismatic quality that drew everyone to her. But she could run very hot and cold, dropping a lover just as quickly as she picked them up. On March 28, 1981, at the age of 19, Marjorie married her first husband, Mitchell, the boyfriend she had moved to Orlando for. Within a year and a half, the marriage fell apart. Shocker. (laughs) Yes. Mitchell was almost 30, and he was consumed with his own motorcycle business, keeping more nine-to-five hours while Marjorie was working in nightlife and partying, and she was 19. Yeah, so young. Yeah, it was just too early for that sort of commitment. He totally understood, and they split amicably. Despite her subsequent marriages, Marjorie would often use her first husband's last name, as Marjorie Marquis was a brilliant name for a dancer, as we said, and she felt much prettier. Before the ink on the divorce paperwork was dry, Marjorie met husband number two, Larry Tweed, a handsome, muscular 22-year-old, so more age-appropriate, who stood six foot four and 240 pounds. He was a gentle giant who loved singing and songwriting and had wealthy parents who owned a chain of furniture stores. Ooh. So eight months after her divorce was finalized from Marquis, she wed Larry on June 18th, 1983. So she did not wait long. During this time, Marjorie was promoted to complex supervisor, and she began to grow up from party girl to responsible manager. So in a turnaround from her first marriage, uh, Larry still wanted to party and go out all night, and she increasingly found his behavior immature and frustrating. (laughs) So a little after only one year of marriage... Marjorie filed for divorce. No. Mm-hmm. Why marry him? I think for Marjorie, she desperately needed um, accolades and she needed people to prove their affection to her all of the time. That it wasn't just good enough to be with her. You had to give her things. You had to do the ultimate commitment. Even if she ultimately decided to throw it away, she wanted you to put your love on the line. Crazy. Yeah, I think she was very narcissistic, and getting people to marry her was part of what she felt like was winning, you know? Because it costs money to get divorced, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if she was getting stuff from them. His family had a lot of money, so it doesn't say that she won anything in settlements, and I don't know what you would get after only a year of marriage. Or under? Or under. So I don't know if – I don't know how – expensive divorces if it's not contested. Okay. So even before the divorce was finalized in 1984, Marjorie had already moved on with her next lover. This was a part-time singer and hairdresser named Luke Forrest, who occasionally had gigs at Church Street. So he was tall and handsome with strong features. Uh, A 30-something-year-old who was totally mesmerizing to Marjorie. She really fell head over heels for this guy. I think this was like the first guy who really took her for a ride and not the other way around. Within weeks, she moved from Larry's house into Luke's apartment. Right away, this guy was a controlling nightmare. He insisted on managing their finances and each week required her to hand over her paycheck so he could pay their bills. What? Yeah, red flag. If you are dating somebody and they insist on taking your money – so they can manage your money. Don't so shady. Them. Super shady. 
About a year after they started dating, she was at work when a coworker told her her car was getting towed. When she attempted to stop the tow truck driver, he told her that her car was being repossessed due to non-payment. Oh, so of my course, God. Yeah, Luke is supposed to be paying all of her bills. So she confronted him, and he admitted that he had gambled away all of their money on high lie. Excuse me? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. So I had no idea what high lie was either. I wanted to say it like it's so obvious to see what you would say. It's apparently a variation on traditional court and racket sports from northern Spain that was popular in South Florida at the time. It sets up eight teams equipped with wooden bats and baskets against each other in a fast speed racquetball style game. So apparently it's something you can bet on like horse racing or dog racing because you're betting on which team is going to win the fastest. That's the most random shit I've ever heard. I know. And it's even weirder because it's pronounced highlight. lie. It is spelled two words, J-A-I space A-L-A-I. Jai-lai? Jai-lai? <laughs> it's like Jai-a-lai, but it's Hai-lai. Um, yeah, so Luke was apparently obsessed with this, and he had gambled away all of their money. I would be so pissed, too. It's like you're talking to your coworkers, and you're like, my boyfriend just gambled away all their money. They're like, what, on the ponies? Or on Did he poker? go to Vegas? Yeah. On poker? <laughs> no, on Hai-lai. <laughs> it's like then you have to explain that. Yeah, People running around with baskets and <laughs> – Wooden bats. Bats, yeah. So she did leave him, but after he crawled back apologetically and promised to never gamble again, Mm -hmm. she took him back. In 1985, Luke wanted to move back to his hometown of Cincinnati. So his parents owned an apartment complex and they wanted to sell and move to Florida. And so Luke told Marjorie that he had a deal with them that if they moved in and he fixed up the complex and then they sold it, that he would receive A, a free apartment for while he was doing it, and B, a large percentage of the sales when they actually sold the building. So Marjorie thought that this was like a good idea to get some, you know, quick money, which seems like a terrible idea for me because she was really doing well at her job at Church Street Station. Yeah, it seems like he just wants to pull her away from whatever life she has, whether that's her paycheck or her success or whatever. Mm -hmm. She has a really good network there, and she's been promoted twice. She's well-regarded by her, you know, colleagues. It just seems like not a good idea, but she does it. Um, So they sell all of their furniture and possessions and pack the rest in the car, moving to Cincinnati with $8,000 in savings. But once they left Florida, Luke was making a series of alarming phone calls at payphones on the way, and he finally revealed that the apartment that they were supposed to be able to move into wasn't going to be ready for another month or two. Oh, wow. So they're homeless, and they have no place to go. So he suggests that they move to Las Vegas temporarily. Do you think this was all planned? I I think it was planned. I I don't think he ever had the intention of moving to Cincinnati. Oh, God. I know. Yeah, he's a disaster human. So he tells her that the reason they should go to Vegas is because he knows people who own a salon there. So he he cuts hair. He says that he has a job lined up and that he can go and work there right away. So she's like, okay, I guess in for a penny, in for a pound, I'm, I'm going to ride with you. Let's do this. 
So she goes with him, but things do not go well in Vegas. Although Marjorie got a job as a showgirl at the Stardust, it wasn't super well paying, and Luke began encouraging her to strip for better money. What? Yeah, and she did not want to do it. And he was not pulling in any money of his own. He told her at first he could not locate the friends who were supposed to help him get a job. And then he claimed he actually could not work in Vegas because his cosmetology license was only applicable in Florida. So he just wanted to move there, have her strip, and then gamble all her money. Pretty much, yeah. And to make matters worse, he then starts pressuring her to let another woman come into their relationship. What? Yeah, F this dude hard. Bye. It's a trash bag. He is terrible. So the final blow to the relationship was when Marjorie went looking for the saved $8,000, which was mostly her money, and found out that Luke once again had blown it all gambling. I do not know. I do not know if it was high lie this time. I don't know how big the high lie market in Vegas was. Hopefully he learned his lesson. Just yeah. gambled it like a normal person on blackjack or poker. <laughs> yeah, maybe you just stay away from gambling, Luke. You're not you're not very good at it. Uh-huh. The house all, always wins, my friends. The high lie always wins. The high lie. They had been in Vegas for three months when she packed her bags and headed back to Florida. So unfortunately, on her way back to Florida, her car began having mechanical problems and it broke down completely just outside of Phoenix. She was told that the car needed an expensive part that would take over 10 days to order. So she's stranded. She's shit out of luck. She has no money because Luke spent all of their money. Um, And so she needs to get a temporary job to make enough money to get back to Florida. So obviously, there's not a big market for showgirls in Phoenix, Arizona. No. And it's not exactly fast money, even if she could find like a dinner theater place, you know. So she, of course, has to turn to stripping and she finds a job easily at Phoenix's Bourbon Street Circus. Which sounds like fun. Yeah, sounds like a fun place. Yeah. Maybe we'll go someday. We'll do a tour. (laughs) A tour. (laughs) Tour. She had only been working there for a couple days when she met Jay Orban. It was lust at first sight for him. Marjorie really excelled in her new career. So she had the natural grace of a lifelong dancer, the perfect body, but she also had that quality that I talked about earlier, which is like the chameleon-like charm of someone who could be everything to everyone at any moment. She just knew how to read people and give them what they were looking for. Okay. Which is really good in a strip club, you know? For sure, Yeah. As a club manager back in Florida, she had been making a top salary of 850 a week, and at the strip club in Phoenix, she was making 500 to $600 a night, up to $1,500 a night in 2020 money. Jesus. Yeah, so she's raking it in. So Jay was a regular who was friendly with all of the girls at the club, and he began showing up all six, night, six nights a week that Marjorie worked, and he was paying her time between dances. Okay. So he would literally pay her to like sit and chat with him. Throughout the next two months, the two grew close through Jay's many visits to Marjorie's workplace. She told him all about what happened with Luke in Vegas and how she ended up in Phoenix. Jay could not believe a man could be that stupid to lose her. He was just right from the get out, thought she was so smart and so pretty. Like he couldn't understand how this guy had lost her, you know? Yeah, for sure. He pursued her relentlessly, and he begged for a chance to go on a date outside of the club. She finally acquiesced um, to a daytime picnic in the park. And at first, it was romantic. Jay had packed a picnic basket and a blanket, and he immediately complimented her on how beautiful she looked. She was wearing, you know, a tank top and jeans, and he was used to seeing her, you know, in her strip club attire. So this was, like, 
totally different scene for them. And it started going really well, but then eventually he took out a camera. And while she was trying to eat and make conversation, he just started incessantly snapping photos of her. Oh my God, that's so creepy. It's just so (laughs) creepy. So of course, she was super creeped out and ended the date. But she continued to see him at the club. And eventually she was talking to him one night about how hard it was to save money for her move back to Florida while she was paying every night to stay at a motel. So Jay offered to let her stay at his house as a roommate for free. So she was a little wary of this because obviously he was very interested in her. But the other girls in the club said that he had helped out some of the women in a similar way in the past and he hadn't been creepy about it. Yeah, but I don't know. Those photos would creep me out. Yeah, you're also – you're walking a line if you know somebody's interested in you and you yeah. decide to platonically move in with them. So she did decide to move in and she was less than impressed when she finally saw his house. It was shabby, sparsely decorated, and the walls were covered with framed photos of naked women. What? Yeah, so he had like some posters of naked women, like, you know, like centerfold type things framed. So none and then of the girls also- from the club. Oh, no, no. He also had his own amateur photographs of the girls from the club that were clearly his. No. But I don't don't think those ones were nude. I think that he like had commissioned some of them to do photo shoots with him and they weren't necessarily nude, but they were just weird. Yeah, that's their rent. Yeah. (laughs) So she was like, well, that explains the camera when they went on the date, you know? Creeper. Despite all of this, the two eventually bonded in their new living situation. Margie later said, I was genuinely very fond of him. He was funny. Great personality, down to earth, sweetest, funniest guy. So one night after Jay had treated Marjorie to a fancy dinner and all night dancing and drinks, the two finished a bottle of wine and began to fool around. Eventually, the action moved to the bedroom, and this was all like Marjorie was into this. This was all consent. Okay. Um, But when their clothes came off and they became more intimate, the sparks faltered. Marjorie later said, he was sweating all over me and were rolling around, and then he suddenly like, wow, that was great. Wait, what? So so basically, this is exactly what she says. (laughs) He's sweating all over me and we're rolling around. And then he's suddenly like, wow, that was great. I don't know what he thought he did, but it wasn't what I thought he did. So that was a little traumatizing to me. So my read is that he came too fast before they even oh, got no, it in. because he was like sweaty and then he also and excited. like – excited. Yeah, because she does say later that they did not consummate the relationship that night. So – Clearly something. There was a disconnect there. Oh, no. Run, Marjorie. Yeah. So Jay passed out in his bed, very satisfied, obviously. And she dressed quickly and went to her own room. And literally like the next day was like, yeah, I'm I'm moving today. I'm going to Florida now. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) There's nothing like some bad sex to make you reprioritize your life. Yeah, with your platonic roommate. Yeah, I think that's definitely was the death knell. It was like, I don't know if I can continue living in this living situation. And she, she wanted to get back to Florida anyway. She just was like, I think I have enough money. Let's go. So meanwhile, Jay was totally on the opposite. He was like, I love you. Let's build a life together here. And she's like, nope, I got stuff to do in Florida. And she left. Um, so although their relationship was short-lived, Jay would spend the rest of his life calling her the one who got away. Oh, no. 
Yeah. So Marjorie returns to Florida and she calls her old friend Michael J. Peter and she got a job topless dancing at his place, the dollhouse in Fort Lauderdale. So now she was pulling in $1,000 a night. So Fort Lauderdale is even better than Phoenix. Booming. Yeah. So she got herself a nice new apartment, furniture, and began to reestablish herself in Florida when who should roll into town and back into her life? Oh my God. Don't tell me the hairstylist. Yes, it's her no. shitty Luke. <laughs> no. Luke is like such a like 90s, you know, heartthrob douche name too. It really is. Yeah. Like especially for we're talking like the late 80s. It's like even ahead of its time. So he was like even more of a sexy badass. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Gross. Don't take him back. So of course, Luke apologized and Marjorie took him back. He's got to get closer to that high lie gambling, you know? Got to get back to Florida. (laughs) There wasn't enough high lie in Vegas. (laughs) She even let him move into her new place. So about a month after he moved in, Luke's parents came to visit. And Marjorie had met the forest on numerous occasions. And she especially really got along with his mom. So while they were visiting, Luke told Marjorie that the reason for the visit was to attend their wedding. What? He just like planned the wedding without telling her? Yeah, so Marjorie's stunned. They had, you know, before the whole Vegas thing, discussed marriage at one point, but they were only recently back together and he hadn't proposed. So she's like, what the heck are you talking about? Yeah, she's a pro Never. at this point. She's already been married twice, so she knows <laughs> the normal know. steps of marriage. Yeah, she's like, wait a minute, we're missing some steps here. <laughs> but she loved Luke and she didn't want to disappoint his mother, so she agreed to a simple ceremony on the beach. They were married on May 9th, 1986. She was 24, and this was a third marriage for both. For both? For both. Luke had been around too. Huh. Man, actually, you know, in in hindsight, maybe Luke was a good match for her. Um, So later Marjorie said that as she walked down the Isle of Sand, she knew it was a mistake. Only a month later, she moved out, leaving Luke with all of her belongings that she had purchased recently. Yeah, she was just like, peace. She's like, keep the stuff. Bye. Bye. Uh, Their divorce was finalized on August 12th, 1986, after only three months of marriage. Another one bites the dust. Of course, our gal Marjorie didn't stay single for long. She almost immediately began seeing a handsome New York Italian who owned a tile contracting company named Joe Cannizzaro. He was 33 to her 24, and they had a very romantic whirlwind relationship. I think all of her relationships are whirlwind relationships. I'd say, yeah. (laughs) And probably very romantic. I mean, it can't – you're in the honeymoon phase the whole time. Yes, exactly. I mean, all of her divorces have been less than two years for now. Like, pretty I epic. can't even believe you get to know somebody that much to hate them by that point. <laughs> um, so she really liked that he was masculine and macho on the outside, but sweet and sensitive with her. Less than two months after her divorce from Luke was finalized, Marjorie became Mrs. Joe Cannizzaro on October 10th, 1986. Wow. Yeah. For those of you keeping a track at home, that's five months and one day from her wedding day to Luke. From her wedding day? From her wedding day to Luke. So she was married to two weddings in the span of less than six months. Is that a record? <laughs> I think it is. If you guys have any stories of people who got married faster on the rebound Please let than us that, know. let us know for sure. Because <laughs> that's 
wild. Um, this was Joe's first marriage and Marjorie's fourth, but she falsely claimed on her marriage certificate that it was her second. So huh. she's lying. You can do yeah, that. Yeah, she's lying. I, I guess so. I mean, who's going to stop you? The person who, you know, processes the paperwork doesn't know. So throughout the years, she starts lying more and more about things. Around this time, she mostly lied about the number of husbands she's already had. Um, she says that she's had several advanced degrees, even though she never went to college. She also claims that she can speak many different languages, which seems like such an obvious one for people to disprove. A hundred percent. People would be like, hablas espanol? And she'd be like, uh. We. Oui. El baño. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, she also shared untrue stories about her interesting family and wealthy and famous friends. It seems like along the way, she had developed an insatiable need for attention, admiration, and flattery. And she just really needed to like make up stories that would get her that sort of attention. Crazy. Yeah, she's a narcissist for real. Okay. Meanwhile, in 1986, Michael J. Peter was running a veritable empire of skin. He owned eight gentlemen's clubs, including Solid Gold, The Dollhouse, and Pure Platinum. And at this point, he was grossing over $10 million a year. Man, we're in the Just wrong biz, big. Jess. <laughs> I know. We didn't establish a high-end strip club empire. What are we doing? Yeah. So he's bawling at this point. At this point, he owns a home and two yachts in Fort Lauderdale, an estate in Orlando, a New York City apartment, a mansion in Hollywood, and he travels by private jet. Oh, my God. 10 mil can do that. Apparently. I guess it's like in 2020 money, it's like 23,500,000. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot. Yep. Um, he was the ultimate playboy. That is a lot of ones right there. <laughs> um, he was the ultimate playboy and often scoffed about the idea of marriage saying, why take send to the beach? So he was very invested in controlling of all the quality at his clubs. So he was very much wanting to project this idea of sophistication, even at something that has been historically considered low rent, like strip clubs. And at times, he even asked canine cops to search dancers' locker rooms for drugs. Whoa. Yeah. So I don't know if that's an infringement on your privacy, or it's good that he's trying to keep his dancers away from drugs. Well, would they bust the, sh the girls if they – I don't know. I don't know if he got the – like if they were like, you know, private off-duty cops that he got to like – Just you keep know, them just clean. Just alert him. Yeah. Yeah, just keep them clean or if he actually like hauled them in, which I hope he didn't do. But I, I do think that, you know, this is an industry that gets a reputation for having really troubled people in it. And if he was helping and supporting his employees stay off drugs, that's a good idea. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So when he stopped by his clubs, the bartenders and managers would fawn all over him and flatter him rather than shoot it straight. Only Marjorie would tell it to him how it really was. So for instance, he would come in and usually the other people would be like, everything's great. Sales are up. We're doing well. And he would go to Marjorie and he'd be like, okay, what's really going on? And she's like, the bartender's been giving away free drinks. The DJ seems drunk. You know, someone's dealing coke out of the bathroom. <laughs> oh my God. She's his little rat. She's his little snitch. And so he really found out the truth about what was going on. So he started actually paying her to go to his other clubs while he wasn't there so she could get the skinny on what was really going on. So while doing that, she ended up helping him to do away with a lot of the theft and mismanagement that was happening. 
So Michael always wanted to project a sophistication and class, Marjorie said. One of the reasons we've always been friends is because I would always tell him the truth. That was the core of our relationship. I mean, that's yeah. good. So they, yeah, they ended up like building quite the bond. So Michael also had an entertainment group that featured <laughs> it's the Solid Gold Dancers, but I don't think it was the, the Solid yeah. Gold Dancers. <laughs> yeah. It's um because he had a strip club called the Solid Gold. He had been packaging some of the better dancers as like this entertainment package. Um, and so he decided with Marjorie's guidance to transform the troupe into a Vegas style burlesque show. So her new job title was actually to be a producer of the group, hiring the dancers, designing the costumes, choreographing the routines, and also starring in the show. That sounds right up her alley. Yeah, she loved it. This was like a dream job for her. So the gimmick for the newly dubbed Platinum Dolls was for all the dancers to have platinum, bleach blonde hair, and identical makeup and perform dance routines in matching provocative outfits. Okay. So this is when Marjorie really adopted the look that she would come to have for the rest of her life and really become known for. She dyed her hair in almost white platinum. She got hair extensions and breast implants. And she frequented tanning beds to get that crispy late 80s glow. Very much uh, the woman from Something About Mary look. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, that nice crispy nice chicken. crispy bacon, bacon look. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Michael J. Peter had expanded his empire nationally now, and the dolls flew all around the country performing in his clubs. On trips to L.A., Michael J. Peter and the girls would rub elbows with stars like Sylvester Stallone and Don Johnson. Get out. Yeah, and they were big in the 80s. I mean, yeah. that was like Miami Vice era. Um, and so Marjorie even remembered riding Harleys down Sunset Strip with the rock band Martley Crew, who made the dollhouse famous in 1987 when they were featured in the Girls, Girls, Girls video. The strip club was? Yeah. So the dollhouse and the dancers and even Marjorie are in the in the video. Crazy. Yep. And they performed there like when they did the video in another time. So we Molly Crew had some sort of – For the Instagram. We do. We need yeah. She's apparently whipping around her platinum blonde hair on the stage with the band in a fuchsia bikini. So we have to oh, look for that part. It's not going to be hard to miss. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a totally wild time, obviously, in Marjorie's life. The Platinum Girls began performing internationally. She danced all over the world in places like Tokyo, Paris, Italy, Honolulu, and Germany. Whoa. Yeah. And also, this is the late 80s. I imagine that they're on like crazy private jets and doing cocaine and just really living it up. And they're all like physically fit, good looking young women, oh you God, know? That is like a party. It's a party and a half. So naturally, her marriage to Joe Cannizzaro failed. Oh, bon, I forgot bon, bon. about him. I know, Joe. Joe was a really minor part of this part of her life. Oh. Um, so they divorced on October 19th, 1988, two years after their wedding day. Bye, two years. Joe. Two years was pretty good, but I feel like it only lasted two years because she was never around. Exactly. It sounds like she was traveling all the time. So while her marriage was breaking down, she was often on the road um, and she was opening new clubs with Michael and they ended up like talking a lot, traveling together. You know, a lot of the girls were really young and would go out partying every night and sometimes she would just stay inside with Michael and like chat in their hotel rooms. And these intimate e evenings eventually became romantic and then sexual. Ooh. So this was 
bittersweet for Marjorie. She had loved him since she was 18. So this was kind of like a culmination of this long-term affection she had had for him. But she also knew that he was never going to settle down. He yeah. was very open was about say. that. Yeah. So she's like got the man of her dreams in one capacity, but she also knows she's never going to have him the way she wants. Yeah. So Michael adored Marjorie, but he didn't realize exactly how much until she left him in 1989 to move to New Jersey to be with her wealthy, much older boyfriend, Ronald McMahon. Ronald McMahon. Yes. He was the handsome owner of an excavating company, 56 to Marjorie's 28. Whoa, twice her age. Uh Uh-huh. So he owned homes in New Jersey and Fort Lauderdale, and he also collected rare cards. He and Marjorie had run in the same, like, wealthy upscale circles in Fort Lauderdale. And there he met her and wined and dined her, taking her on lavish Bahamas trips and giving her his $80,000 Ferrari convertible to drive around town when he wasn't in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) She must have loved that. Yeah, exactly. So she really enjoyed being pampered this way. Um, She was also living in his swanky Florida house while he conducted his business from his New Jersey home. So he proposed after eight months of long-distance dating, and Marjorie quit her job with the Platinum Dolls to move to be with him. Whoa. Yeah. So she took this one seriously. She moved to New Jersey, and she and Ronald were married. Unfortunately, husband number five would not be the happily ever after she was hoping for. At first, Marjorie's life with Ronald was a dream come true. Even though he was twice her age, he swept her off her feet buying her expensive gowns, furs, and jewelry. It's so funny to me that all of these women want furs. Like, that's not something you hear anymore. No so one wants 80s. furs. It's so it's 80s. So 80s. <laughs> yeah. Um, They ate at the best restaurants and would go into New York City every weekend in a limo to see Broadway shows. Soon after they were married, Ronald did something incredibly romantic. He brought her into his attorney's office and signed over his excavating company into her name. Hmm. Yeah. So he he said basically that he wanted her to feel like she had all the control and power in the relationship because she had been very worried about, you know, just being a stay-at-home wife who didn't have any money of her own. And she quit a job in Florida to come up there and everything. Exactly. I think as somebody who liked to be in control of her own destiny, this was a weird position for her to be into. So she really enjoyed that. He also changed the name of the company to Marco Contracting, which stood for Marjorie's company, Marco. And he repainted all of the excavating equipment hunter green, which was Marjorie's favorite color. That's cute. So Yeah, it seems like they're off to a really good start. Uh, For the next year, Marjorie became very active in Ronald's business. She learned how to do the bookkeeping and payroll. She went to job sites, and she even learned how to operate the heavy machinery. Slowly, however, Marjorie started realizing that signing the company over to her might not have been a completely altruistic and romantic gesture. Oh. After they had – yeah. (laughs) I mean, he's still a businessman, right? So after they had been married for almost a year, Ronald had the company certified as a woman's business enterprise. So in New Jersey at the time, there was basically a statute that said um, government jobs had to be filled by X amount of minority-owned companies. Okay. And so by doing this, he could overbid on projects and still win the business because those jobs required a percentage of minority-owned business contracts, and he was now technically a woman-owned business. That's so shady. It's shady and clever. So that in itself is like 
shady, but I can understand, you know? Yeah. He, he – even though he's operating it – He's operating, he's running the business, but because it's legally in Marjorie's name, he can claim it's a woman-owned business. Oof. Mm-hmm. Sneaky, sneaky, especially sneaky. because construction and contracting is just so overwhelmingly filled by men. So male-dominated, yeah. Mm-hmm. Marjorie's like, okay, that's a little weird, but I get it. And she also became friendly with Gilda, which was the company's main bookkeeper. So the two women started having coffee every morning. And as Gilda got to know Marjorie, I think she felt a little weird about some of the stuff that was going on in the company. Okay. So she asked her, you know, the company is completely in your name. His name is not anything, it seems like, Gilda asked her. Did you t- did he tell you why he did this? And Marjorie was like, no, he never really explained. It was just like a romantic gesture. And so Gilda's like, okay, I know my boss. This guy doesn't do anything like purely for romance. There has to be some reason he's doing this. So over the next few weeks, Gilda brought documents to Marjorie's attention that showed that taxes weren't being paid. Oh, no. Yeah. Marjorie asked Ronald about this, but he kept brushing it off. So Gilda kept pushing it and she kept telling Marjorie to push it because she was concerned that Marjorie was going to be personally liable for the company's mounting debts. Which is a real concern. At this point, it was up to $50,000, which is like $100,000 in 2020 money. But Ronald convinced her that it was normal when running a multi-million dollar company to occasionally be in the red. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I know. And I think he is like kind of being condescending towards her. I mean, she's like a showgirl, exotic dancer. So he's probably like, oh, you don't – you wouldn't understand. This is totally normal. Still, she can't let it go and she keeps like bringing it up and bringing it up until they it escalates into this terrible fight and he decides to fly to Florida to spend time in his other house so he could get away from her. So Marjorie is furious and pissed. So she calls several of their contractors and the IRS to alert them of the situation. She's basically like, he put this stuff in my name. I'm not responsible for it. I think he owes you money. I'm I'm like she basically like blew the whistle on him. Whoa. She copied every document in their basement office and sent them all to the IRS. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> so then she called her mother in hysterics because she was like, I don't know what to do now. Obviously, he's going to find out about this and he's going to be really angry. And her mother in turn called Michael J. Peter and told him Marjorie was in way over her head. So together, the two of them drove to New Jersey, moved Marjorie out of Ronald's house and back to Fort Lauderdale. And she filed for divorce and the papers wrote all assets and debts of Morco Marco contracting revert back to Ronald McMahon. But unbeknownst to her, a tax lien was placed in her name. Oh, no. Yeah, this will be something that ends up coming back to haunt her later. But right now she doesn't know it. So she is like thinking she got out of that situation, right? She moves into Michael's Fort Lauderdale mansion and resumes her work with the Platinum Dolls. This time around, things are different between them. They both had really appreciated what they had lost when they lost the other one. Michael had matured and he was starting to grow tired of having a different woman in his bed every night. Plus, they were both single at the same time for the first time ever, so they became a serious, committed couple. Ooh. I know. I really – I like Michael for her. This is probably definitely, you know, sadly for the story, it doesn't last, but I think he was definitely the the most well-intentioned man in her life. Okay. 
So for the next few years, Marjorie lived with Michael in his mansion and shared his extravagant lifestyle. They lived a life of luxury and indulgence. They vacationed on yachts in the Caribbean and the south of France, um, Michael buying her anything she could dream of. And Michael was even featured in an episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with oh Robin Leach. We need that clip yeah, we too. Should, we should find that. <laughs> um, and Marjorie is in the clip draped over his arm, dripping in fur and diamonds while he showed off his estate. By 1990, Michael's Empire of Gentlemen's Club was international. He owned upwards of 50 clubs worldwide, including ones in Athens, Barcelona, London, Paris, and Mexico, and he had over 5,000 employees. Impressive. Yeah, he was now grossing over $100 million a year crazy. The two fell deeper in love and seemed to have an unshakable bond, despite the fact that Marjorie never disclosed to Michael exactly how many times she had been married, nor that she was infertile. So they're really close, but they're still, she's keeping some things close to the best. Yeah. In 1991, Michael took Marjorie to New York to spend the holidays with his parents, and to their astonishment, he proposed to Marjorie with a stunning four-carat engagement ring. Whoa, making moves. Yeah, this is the first time his parents were shocked because he had always said he was never going to marry. So they couldn't believe it. But he was like, no, dad, this is the one. How old is he during this time? Um, he's 15 years older than Marjorie. Okay, cool. And she's like 30. So he's probably like in his mid-40s at this cool. point. Sounds right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, Marjorie enthusiastically accepted. However, when the couple arrived back in Florida, things changed. So at this point, Marjorie had always seemed to understand the nightclub impresario's business, which makes sense because she had been, you know, a topless dancer herself. She had worked with him. She understood that, like, it's part of his business to be surrounded with gorgeous, scantily clad women. Now she got that ring on her finger and she's like, I don't want you around these women. I I don't like this. Got that rock Mm -hmm. now. Yeah, she's got that rock and she is possessive and jealous she's constantly picking fights with him and he not cute not a good look he responds extremely poorly also not a good look is him getting angry that she's like nagging him and picking fights and so he starts flirting with women intentionally in front of her like good it's just this was what had seemed like a very solid mutual respect and appreciation went into a place where there was like some power struggle it seemed and like at this jealousy point. yeah mhm so after a few weeks of this michael broke off the entire relationship telling marjorie that it had been a mistake and he would never be the marrying kind so they kept working together they still loved each other but it was an impossible situation he even wanted to buy her a condo like a nice luxury one when she moved out of his mansion but she was very stubborn and pride prideful and she was like no absolutely not so she rented a tiny little house for $600 a week $600 a month sorry $600 a month and um he would come visit to like have drinks with her and he'd be like so frustrated because the place was like shabby and falling apart and and he'd be like nice place you got here and she'd just be like isn't it and he was just like so frustrated she wouldn't like accept the condo from him (laughs) so he never stopped loving marjorie he vowed he would always be there for her when she needed him and years later as you will see he does keep his promise oh yeah so in 1992 after her breakup with michael marjorie married for the sixth time at the age of 31 
So Milan Raidsitz was a sexy Danish dancer who was Marjorie's pas de deux partner. They married in April 1992, only months after the breakup. But this marriage was destined to fail in an entirely unique way from Marjorie's other five marriages. Milan was openly gay, and the marriage was a sham to provide him with a green card to stay in the country. Oh, I like that. That's a good marriage. Yeah, I mean, if you've been married already five times, why not, you know, help a friend out and get married a sixth time? For sure, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) They had a quickie courthouse wedding, followed by a quickie divorce. She once again went by the surname Marquis, and in early 1993, she decided to leave Florida, the Platinum Dolls, and Michael forever. Whoa, that's good. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think she needs a change. So a big reason for this was that Michael's reach was everywhere where she lived in Florida. I mean, he just owned so many clubs. Everybody knew him. She said she would like go out with the other platinum dolls and try to like meet men and talk to them. And as soon as they found out who she was and who she used to date, they'd like just run away from her. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. She said, I couldn't do anything or go anywhere because I had property of Michael J. Peter stamped on my butt. On my butt. On my butt. So she went to Vegas once more, this time on her terms. So for the next few years, she worked as a full-fledged showgirl. Um, While working in Vegas, she ran with a hard-partying, fast-paced group who clubbed hop till the sun came up and then took weekend water skiing trips to California and Catalina. So it sounds like she's having a good time. Yep. Um, So during this time, she had a couple intense relationships, most notably with a Saudi prince – and another with a performer in the Pri- Pirates of the Caribbean show at Treasure Island. Oh, my God. So she had an interesting taste in men. It was like all over the place. Oh, my God. Saudi prince and performer of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> According to Dancing with Death, she also had a brief but tumultuous relationship with a well-known celebrity, but she didn't name names, so I don't know who it was. Oh, I want to know. It has to be some, like, C-list, like, 80s person, right? Oh, my God. Oh, God. Um, By 33, Marjorie was getting burnt out by the lifestyle and started to crave stability. She fantasized about having this, like, parallel life where she would cook and clean and care for a family. And most, uh, like, more than anything, what she wanted was a baby. Oh, okay. Well, that's unfortunate. Exactly. Then one day in 1994, Marjorie received a call from a forgotten fling. It was Jay Orban. Jay was 35 and he seemed destined to be a bachelor. He had dated dozens of beautiful women in the years since Marjorie, but had never gotten over her. So for a decade in every city Jay traveled to for work, Jay had thumbed through the phone book looking for Marjorie's number, calling dozens of women across the country with names similar to Marjorie Marquis. Then, on a trip to Las Vegas, he saw her beautiful face on a billboard advertising the Club Paradise Dancers, of which she was a part of. It was her. He was awestruck. It's also crazy because he immediately pulls over and runs to a payphone, and he gets the phone book and looks her up, and he finds Marjorie Marquis in the phone book. Oh, my God. But think about it. She had been married so much. If she had kept any one of the other last names, he would have never found her. I wouldn't put it past him that he was looking up every Marjorie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he looks her up. He finds the number. He tears the page out from the phone book and apparently he put it in his wallet and it stayed there for the next decade. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, he was sprung. So he called her and miraculously she answered. That one chance sighting and the phone call that followed kicked into motion the next decade of the highest of highs and lowest of lows for Marjorie and Jay. And it would put them on a mutual path of destruction, pain, and ultimately for Jay, death. Oh, no. Yeah. So anyway, Jay had just tracked Marjorie down and he had found her. She was stunned when he called. She remembered him, but she had absolutely no idea how he had gotten her number. She didn't even know she was listed. So she was like, this guy was like so random. Like, can you imagine just being in your apartment in the afternoon and then you get a a phone call from a guy you had barely thought of who you knew 10 years earlier. Who may or may not have prematurely ejaculated on you. Yes. During a really low point in your life, you probably don't want to revisit that when your boyfriend had used all your money and you had to like travel across the country stripping to get home. And like sleep at someone's place for free. Yeah. So she was so surprised by this phone call that she agreed to have a drink with him, I think just because she was like in shock and didn't really know how to respond. You know, you know, when you're put on the spot. Um, so they meet up that night and Jay is floored. She is even more beautiful than he remembered. And to Marjorie, he looks much the same. He's like still what she described as like a caricature of a Western salesman. He's got cowboy boots and pinky rings and a huge rodeo belt buckle. But now the 10 years had added a few pounds and taken away some hair. So she's not immediately physically attracted. But she has fun on the date with him because he's really funny and down to earth. And that's totally unlike like the playboy types she's been dating who yeah. are like all ego, no fun. Yeah. Like he's very humble and funny and fun to be around. Cool. So they start a long distance relationship. And the relationship actually becomes sexual the next time Jay visited. His performance still not great. No. <laughs> but it's passable. And Marjorie said at this point in her life, rocking sex was no longer the top priority. Okay. Yeah. Which I think happens like when you're looking for more stability, all of a sudden like, you know, the guy like Luke Forrest, the hairdresser guy, he probably was rocking sex. And yeah. look at how that turned out, you exactly. know? Um. The first time she visited Phoenix, Jay proposed and she turned him down. She enjoyed his company, but she knew she wasn't in love with him and she didn't think that was fair to either one of them. But they continued to see each other and one night when he was visiting Vegas, she confessed to him that the one thing that she had always wanted in her life but knew she would never get was a child. So he told her that if she would reconsider marrying him, he would pay for as many fertility treatments as she possibly needed and they could raise a family together. Interesting. Yeah. So Jay would get to start a family with the woman he was madly in love with and Marjorie would get the child she longed for. So it seemed like a win-win, you know? So Marjorie said later, being the salesman that he was, he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So on July 22nd, 1995, Marjorie Ann Crow, Marquis, Tweed, Forrest, Canizaro, McMahon, Raidsitz became Marjorie Ann Orban. Oh my God. (laughs) Yep. This is it. This is the last one. So they eloped at the Little White Wedding Chapel on Las Vegas Boulevard. Which one did you guys elope at? I think it was that one. No, we oh no, we did no, we did um the little white one is the really famous one. We did the one that's more historical. It's the little chapel of the West. Oh yes, yeah. that one's so cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's okay. in a different place because it it 
the one that yours we, is like in the desert, right? It's it's closer to Mandalay Bay, whereas all the other ones are kind of on that like Lovers Lane strip mm-hmm. together. So ours. Okay, was a so that's different. the one. Yeah, you guys were cooler. Yeah, not to like toot our own horns or anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there were no guests. Uh, Jay's friends and family did not even know he was married until after the fact. For her seventh wedding, the bride wore white. It was a sequined dress with billowing sleeves. I mean, this is very classic, like, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Even though it was 95, I guess that look was still around. In in Vegas, for sure. Oh, yeah. It's super Vegas-y. So we'll definitely post their wedding photo. So Jay looks ecstatic. Marjorie's expression seems content, although possibly feigned. So their prenuptial arrangement was that Marjorie would marry Jay and move to Phoenix and begin fertility treatments right away. If she was not pregnant by their two-year anniversary, she would leave no harm, no foul. Oh, whoa. And Jay, Yeah, so she said Jay agreed to these terms. It was a risky prospect. I mean – Marjorie could barely stay with men she felt passionate about, so let alone someone she admitted to, like, not really being head over heels. So it seems uh, seems like an interesting choice, but I think that she was so singularly obsessed with the idea of having a kid. And he was going to provide her with every option medically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she was like, okay, this is worth it for me. And she liked being around him. She wasn't, like, madly in love with him, but it wasn't, like, an untenable situation, yeah. you know? So she immediately began the arduous IVF process, which, if you don't know, is very difficult and very hard on a woman's body. Yeah. Um, You have to, like, shoot up with all of these hormones to make your body produce multiple eggs. And then they have to do surgeries, sometimes multiple surgeries, to harvest the eggs from your body. Um, then they fertilize the eggs in the, in the lab with the semen, and then they put the embryos back inside you, and hopefully it works. But yeah. it's a really hard process with no promises. Yep. Yeah. So she's doing the hormone shots. She's doing the surgeries. Um, and Jay ends up spending over $60,000 on fertility treatments. Sounds right. Yeah. I mean, it was just – especially back then, it was still – well, not like early. It wasn't new technology. It was even more expensive than it is nowadays. Yeah. They hadn't really streamlined the process and no insurance covered it at that point, you know? Ugh. So it, it equates to about hundred grand in today's money. So this experience, which so often rips couples apart, actually brought Marjorie and Jay closer. So he was really catering to her at this time. He was rubbing her back. He bought her a recliner so she could sleep upright, which I guess helped her with some of the hormonal pain and everything. Um, And when she was like feeling sick, he completely supported her through the process. So she was touched by this love and kindness and she started to actually really care for him in her own way. She even told him one night, I'm sure we're going to get pregnant. And if we don't, it doesn't matter. I'll stay. Oh, Yeah, so it feels like this process really brought them closer together. So Jay's parents were confused by their son's choice in wife and whirlwind elopement. And Marjorie didn't help matters by lying to them about her past. So she only admitted to being a choreographer. She never talked about – like she said she was like a showgirl in Vegas, but she didn't talk about like the stripping past, of course. Yeah. And she only told them she had been married once before to – to Mitchell Marquis, and she said that she, like, created this very dramatic story about how they were, like, on their honeymoon, 
and they got into a car accident and she was in a coma for six weeks. And when she woke up, she asked about him and she found out that he had died on impact. What? Yeah. And that's the, and so her, his parents were like, oh my God, you poor thing. You've been through so much. And she was like fake crying when she's like telling them the story. And that is all a lie. Like Mitchell was doing fine, still living in Orlando, running his motorcycle business. <laughs> completely a lie. So pathological. And she told them really weird stories too, like that she had a she had nine siblings, which she only had one sister. And she said she had a twin brother who was a model in South Africa who had become a gigolo for a wealthy older woman. Like these tall tales. She said that she had two other sisters who worked for Cirque du Soleil in Vegas. Like she just made up all of this bizarre stuff to tell her family. So strange. And I don't, I don't know if Jay thought any of this was true or not. So I don't know if he knew that she was lying. That's so weird. So in late 1995, December to be specific, the procedures paid off and Marjorie became pregnant through IVF. Oh my God, stop. Yay, it's a miracle. So of course the couple is over the moon. But the happiness was short-lived when Marjorie's accounts were all seized. She had never contended with the $50,000 she owed the IRS, and now they were coming for her. What? Yeah. So one day while she's super pregnant, I think she had just hit her third trimester. She was at the pharmacy trying to get medication, and she's visibly super pregnant. And they're like, yeah, your card's not working. And none of her cards would work because I guess at a certain point, the RS can seize your account. Yeah. It's just like she didn't know that they were coming for her. Like, do they not call or email or I'm sure she her? ignored it. Okay. okay I'm pretty right. sure she's like the type of person that seems like she can either manipulate her way out of things or she's like, ah, it'll just go away, right? Yeah. Okay. You know? So she – she basically goes to Jay and is like, okay, we have to figure this out. So they go to see a lawyer and the lawyer's like, if you guys had had a prenuptial agreement, this this could have been worked out. Like essentially they could have said that all of Marjorie's debts were hers and not, you know, Jay's responsibility. But because they hadn't, it looked like the IRS could go after all of Jay's money and company as well. Was he still making good money? Like could he just pay he this off? He was still – well, that's what his first plan was. So his plan was like, I can pay this off in installments. Yeah. And they were like, no, you have to give us the 50 grand right away. But they had just spent all of that money on fertility treatments. Yeah. So he wasn't exactly liquid at this point. Got it. Okay. So the lawyer was like, they want their $50,000 in one lump sum. So you you would have to basically – his business would be totally effed, you know? Wow. So what they end up doing is they decide to basically bankrupt Marjorie and they put all of their assets in, in Jay's name. So Marjorie literally has no credit cards, no accounts. She has nothing. So they can't take anything from her. She literally has nothing. Okay. And she only has one small debit account where he deposits $500 a month, yeah. uh, $500 a week for her for an allowance. Okay. So this was the like legal accountant's advice. Okay. So this is what they do. So it's a financial decision that was absolutely necessary at the time, but it would definitely cause great resentment down the road because Marjorie never has access to any money beyond $500 a week. So does this mean Ronald McDonald got off scot-free? Yeah, except for I'm sure that scumbag had some other things that he was in trouble for. Sure. Okay. 
Yeah, like for sure that this was if he was willing to pin 50 grand on his ex-wife or yeah, his current wife gross. at the time, then he probably had all sorts of like illegal, you know, shell situations going yeah. on. Okay. So even though this situation happened, nothing could dampen the excitement and the joy they experienced when Marjorie gave birth to their son, Noah, on August 26, 1996. He was healthy, he was happy, and he was the absolute center of their world. Wow, so they had a kid. Crazy. They had a little boy. Um, So Jay decided to go from wholesale on the road all the time sales to retail. He did this because he wanted to be home more with Marjorie and Noah. Then he signed a three-year lease for a space in the Phoenix Mall, but it ends up disastrously backfiring because nobody shops at his store, and he's in the hole for how much, you know, he paid for the lease, and he's on the line for three years. So he actually ends up having to go on the road extra to make money to support the store, and his mother and Marjorie, who's nursing, have to, like, run the store. So he basically made work for her rather than make her life easier. But I think they're still riding the high of having Noah, so she's she doesn't complain at at this point in her life. It's just difficult because I think during a bonding time for the small family, he has to be away Of course, yeah, of course. So they stayed together, and the months turned into years as they focused on raising Noah. So they they did try to have another baby through IVF, but in 1997, she suffered a late-term miscarriage, oh, which no. is just so devastating. And her OB told her at that time that it was too risky to ever try again. Okay. So they so have one. They are they have one. They're they're happy. I mean, she didn't think she was gonna be able to have children at all. So having Noah is a gift, and Noah, by all accounts, is like a really cute, good kid, you know? So during this period, Marjorie shines as a mom and a homemaker. Jay was back on the road half the year, but his business was flourishing. So now he's driving more than 300,000 miles a year. Whoa. That's so much road trip. I mean, you're on the road a lot usually. Nothing I know like this that. year you have nothing like but that. nothing like no. 300,000 miles. That's nuts. So he was worried about his safety because, I mean, just statistically being on the road that often, yeah. you know, things happen. So he took out two hefty life insurance policies that would leave Marjorie with over $1 million. And he also um, wrote in his will all of the instructions for Marjorie to take over his company. In 2000, Noah is diagnosed with ADHD and the doctor suggests enrolling him in karate to help focus his energy. So Marjorie does, and she meets another glamorous mom with a similar age son, and they become fast friends. Sharon Franco is a tall, slim, beautiful divorcee with custody of her two kids, and she's also in her early 40s. And Sharon is completely taken with Marjorie at first because she's, like, fun and glamorous, and she brags about, like, her relationship with Michael J. Peters, traveling the world, and being in the Motley Crue music video, and you know, how rich Michael J. Peter, her ex was and stuff, but she's also still lying about other things. Like she also tells her about the advanced degrees and like some weird things about her family. She also tells her that the IVF they had to have a baby was not because of her. She tells Sharon that it's because Jay's sperm was bad. Oof. And yep. And that they had to, because his sperm was so bad, which this doesn't even make medical sense, that they had to wash his sperm. And so as a result, his genes are barely in Noah. 
That is like the weirdest thing to say ever. <laughs> that's not even. So Sharon's like, um, I don't understand IVF, so I guess so. <laughs> and little Noah has his mother's white blonde hair, dark eyes, and slim physique. So it seems unlikely, but possible. Okay. You know? From 2002 to 2003, the family buys a new home. Um, that Marjorie fixes up and she becomes obsessed with working out and regaining her showgirl, showgirl figure. So basically like she had kind of turned into more of the mom bod like over these few years. And when Noah gets into school, she has more time on her hands. She doesn't she doesn't work for the entire time that she's with uh, Jay. She's just momming. So she starts like working out like a crazy person to get that back that physique. I yeah. think like she got back down to like she's still 5'8", obviously, but she was more like 130, 135, even yeah. with all the obsessive exercising. Okay. So she never got quite back down to her showgirl weight. It's hard. But I also think she's probably not doing <laughs> cocaine and <laughs> – you know, like partying all the time. Yeah, your body just Plus, changes mis- when you get older. Yeah. And she's had a kid and like IVF does like a number on your body yeah. too. So yeah, so she's like basically they have this new house. She's starting to do all these like Home Depot type projects. Like she does a lot of renovation projects herself. Um, Like she goes to Home Depot to like take these like do-it-yourself lessons and then she like does her own grouting and stuff. Yeah. And then she like works out and she also becomes obsessed with Noah's karate success. So even though they're just little kids, she starts doing really, really bizarre and fucked up things. Like she tells Sharon like when Noah's in a competition that she put itching powder and the other kids' ghee like in their karate outfit to throw the match so the kid was distracted by the itching powder and Noah could win. That's crazy. This is crazy town. Like these kids are like – And is that – did she actually do it? She said she did it and Sharon didn't know if it was like a joke or not. That's not funny. So (laughs) around this time – yeah, not funny. So around this time, there's another um, there's another woman named Janice who has a son who's in the same group. And at one point, the owner of the karate studio is like, oh, he's like the best in the class. Like he's the best in the whole studio. He's going to be like a black belt in no time or something and is like praising this kid. Marjorie loses her goddamn mind and starts like a smear campaign about this little kid and his mother. So she starts like doing harassing phone calls to the mom. She uses spray paint to put graffiti mocking the little boy outside of the karate studio. She ends up making these libelous claims against Janice. I don't know exactly what she said because they don't get into it in the book, but she prints out over 200 copies and puts the flyers like on all of the cars in the parking lot in the karate studio and like all around the school that he goes to. Yeah. So Janice, the mom, of course, is terrified. She complains to the owner of the karate school and says she thinks it's Marjorie because other people have told her that Marjorie's been like saying all this bad stuff around, about her. And the the owner of the karate school confronts Marjorie, but she, of course, denies it and they can't prove anything. So this woman eventually obviously pulls her kid out of that karate school. She also yeah. pulls pulls him out of the public school system he's in to put him in a different school. Because of a mom. Because of a crazy mom. Uh, Meanwhile, she is doing other really weird things. Like I think while she's trying to get her figure back, she starts stealing Noah's Ritalin and crushing it up and snorting it. Sounds right. 
Uh-huh. And she also reveals to Sharon over a conversation that she is like systematically tried to get Jay to have less friends because he used to still enjoy going to strip clubs and like going out with his friends. Yeah. And so she started um, putting medication in his drinks that would make him have cramping or puking or diarrhea. Oh my God. So she would literally like go out with him, be like, I'll come with you because he always invited her. So he, she would go with him and then she would put like drops of something in his drink and then he would get really sick and she would be like, I guess it's just like every time you go out with your friends, you get really sick until finally he was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do it anymore. Oh my God. Yeah. So she's crazy and manipulative. In 2004, the same year that Jay would unfortunately meet his untimely demise, Marjorie had two notable affairs. The first was with a teenager. And the second was with a 60-year-old man. A teenager? So she has range. Mm-hmm. So Josiah Rukart was a 19-year-old black belt who was an instructor at the Gilbride Karate Studio, the place that she's been going. Yep. He was also Sharon's boyfriend. What? Yeah. So this guy is dating one 40-something-year-old and having an affair with another 40-something-year-old. So weird. So everybody knew that he was dating Sharon. That wasn't a secret. This affair was. Um, He had been dating Sharon for months when Marjorie began the affair with him. Even though he was half her age, Sharon confided in Marjorie that she was head over heels for him. It was a real relationship. And of course, how great the sex was. Marjorie was jealous and wanted the young lover for herself. Oh my God. Yep. (laughs) So one day she offered to alter Josiah's uh, karate uniform. She was apparently a very good seamstress. And told him to stop by her house so she could get his measurements, and there she seduced him. So they embarked on a steamy sexual affair that lasted for months, and Sharon was none the wiser about her best friend and young lover's betrayal. Oh, no. Yeah. However, Josiah was falling in love with Sharon and eventually began pulling away from Marjorie. And in her desperation, Marjorie suggested a threesome, like – with Sharon as well because he was like kept talking about Sharon and she's like whatever we can just do a threesome and he's like no 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 no. you're not getting it I just don't want to be with you oh my god so Josiah was like this is just too weird for me and he finally broke it off for good Marjorie became incensed she started yelling at him that she was divorcing Jay and that she needed somebody to be with and he was going to be that person not attractive no, for a 19-year-old. Thre- yeah, the 19-year-old was like, ew, gross. Um, she threatens to tell Sharon about their affair. So Josiah still leaves. He's like, whatever, I'm out. So this is March 2004, the same day that Sharon and Marjorie's friendship actually comes to an end, which is all about this Josiah stuff. Okay. So Josiah calls Sharon and says that Marjorie told him that Sharon was having an affair on him, which is ridiculous. And he tells Sharon he doesn't believe Marjorie. But of course, Sharon's pissed. So she's like, you know what? Screw her. I'm just not going to like take her calls anymore. Yep. And so Marjorie retaliates by calling the karate school and informing the owner and Josiah's father. Josiah's father is another instructor at the karate school about the affair. So they know he's dating Sharon, but she calls the karate school and is like, just so you know, he's also been having sex with me. Whoa. Which I don't know what she wanted to get out of that other than She's just destructive. She's just destructive. Yeah. Um, she then begins calling Sharon's cell and work phone up to 20 times a day. And 
yes, she's either leaving no message at all or she's leaving messages describing the sex she had with Jaseya. Oh, my God. So Sharon realizes that Janice, the other mom who was like run off. Yeah was totally right because when that was all going on, Sharon was still really good friends with Marjorie and was like, no, Marjorie would never do that, you know? And now she's seeing this totally different side of Marjorie and she's like, holy shit, Janice was right the whole time. Yeah. Oh, man. And she she becomes terrified of Marjorie. She moves, changes her last name, and enrolls her kids in a new school. So summer of 2004, Marjorie's on the prowl for a new sex partner And she meets a handsome older gentleman at the club. He's a buff, good-looking 60-year-old bodybuilder named Larry Weisberg. So she went from 19 to 60. Whoa. Yeah. So he's a production manager at a communication company. He's divorced with two grown children and two grandchildren. Marjorie comes on to him after she notices him checking her out at the gym, and she moves quickly. I mean, real quickly. He notices that she's still wearing a wedding ring and he doesn't want to get involved with a married woman. Smart. And she tells him that she's actually divorced. She's been divorced for years and that because her ex is on the road like three-fourths of the year, he just crashes on the couch when he's back in town. That's what she tells him. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. So she claims that $500 a week she's been getting from Jay is actually alimony. And where's Noah this whole time? I don't – he's just going along with it, I guess. I mean, he's he's like at this point a seven-year-old kid, you know? Whoa. So they get hot and heavy instantly, and Larry all but moves in while Jay is away. He's like just at the house all the time. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. She even begins socializing with Larry's daughter, who has a son Noah's age, and like getting the whole family together. Oh, my God. Yep. And then she really weirds out um, Larry's daughter because they're all hanging out together. And she starts like being like, don't you think Larry and Noah look alike? And the daughter's like, "Um, I guess so. Because um, Larry had this like white blonde hair. It was like blonde hair that was going white, you know? Yep. Um, Because he's older. And she's like, Noah really considers like Larry like his real father. Oh my God. And they had been – They'd only been dating for like a couple months. Like that's so intense. So intense. And poor Mm -hmm. dude Jay isn't home this whole time. No, he's on the road making money for his family. Oh my God. It's crazy. So August 26, 2004 marks Noah's eighth birthday and the entire family gathers at a Phoenix Jillian's to celebrate. And it's the last time little Noah will see his dad ever. His real dad or his fake six-year-old dad? dad. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the next day, Jay leaves for a planned business trip that will take three weeks to weave through the southern states to Florida and back. So the first night, he stays in Tucson, where he frequents TD's show club, a high-end strip club. That night, back in his room at the La Quinta Inn, he attempts to call Nora Bess, a dancer for the club, nine times, but she never answers. Ha! Huh. Yeah, so the police were never able to verify that there was any relationship between him and Nora, but it does indicate maybe he was up to some tricks himself. Yeah, I mean, if he's on the road that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, before her, he was a frequent regular at many strip clubs. It sounds like when he's on the road, he doesn't change those spots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he moves on through Texas the next day, then New Orleans, but he's halted in Pensacola by Hurricane Francis. Most of the store owners he usually sells to are packing and closing up due to the storm. So he's kind of shit out of luck here. So yeah. he winds through Alabama and Mississippi and he tries to see like anyone who's still open, but everyone's taking it very seriously, obviously. Yeah. 
And so he decides to cut his losses and head home early. On the morning of his 45th birthday, which is also the last day he will spend on Earth, he wakes up in Tucson and speaks to Marjorie. He tells her that he'll be making it home to spend his birthday with her and Noah. Marjorie tells him that she doesn't think that's a great idea because both her and Noah have come down with strep throat. Huh. Yes. And this, there was strep throat going around Noah's school at this time. So it's possible, but it doesn't appear like they went to the doctor. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he then fields a call from his mother who is calling to wish him a happy birthday. When he tells her he's outside of Tucson, she's over the moon that he's going to get to spend his birthday with his own family. He tells her he's not sure because Marjorie and Noah are sick. This is the last time his mother will ever speak to him. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. The events that transpired on this day would be shrouded in mystery for years to come. So even when versions of the truth come out – Everything is so muddled with secrets and lies that the whole day ends up in a murky cloud of suspicion. Like eventually Marjorie will tell some version of the truth, but you can't trust her at that point. Yeah, of course. So I'm just going to run through what we know, what's totally concrete and provable. On the afternoon of Wednesday, September 8th, Jay arrived in Phoenix. He went to his warehouse, checked his email, and made a few phone calls. He was picked up on a gas station security camera at 4.35, putting gas in his tank and heading in the direction of his home. Sometime after 5 p.m., he was murdered. Whoa. The next – mm-hmm. So they pinpointed it. You'll see, like, how they put the evidence together later. But because Noah never saw his dad – And because of where his cell phone remained in Phoenix, it's believed that he was killed sometime after 5 p.m. that evening. Okay. The next morning, Marjorie claimed Noah was ill and called him out of school. But by midday, she said he was feeling better, so she took him in. Afterwards, she picked him up from school and took him to Target, where she bought a shit ton of cleaning supplies, boxers for Larry, a Nintendo Game Boy game, and some cosmetics to the tune of $482. Huh. So it was a lot of cleaning supplies. She put it on Jay's credit card, which was unusual. She did not have access to Jay's credit cards generally. So this was unusual. The next day, she spent $175 in hardware supplies at Lowe's. That weekend, she obsessively cleaned the garage, even epoxy coating the garage floor and repainting the walls. Hmm. Mm-hmm. She spent the next several days painting the floor with a speckled beige colored sealant. She also patched a hole in the garage door and installed a video security monitoring system. The following week, she did more shopping for anything from sheets to lingerie to a new dryer to paint caulk and drywall tools. At the end of her six-day shopping spree, she had spent over $6,500 all on on Jay's credit cards. That is so much money. It's so much money. And he never gave her his credit cards. He basically would put extra money in her debit account if she needed something specific. So if she's like, I need to buy a new dishwasher or something, he would make sure he put that money in her account. She was not to use his credit cards. Meanwhile, no one's heard from Jay at all. When his friends and family call with concerns because they can't reach him on his cell, she tells tells them that he never came home for his birthday. And this was because she said that she was sick. He decided to avoid getting sick by detouring into a new business trip. 
and this is this is where it gets really fishy when people are like, yeah, but where did he go? She's like, I don't know. He didn't tell me. And she said it's because of security reasons. Like apparently because he traveled with like somewhere in the neighborhood of six hundred to $700,000 worth of goods and had $30,000 in cash on him at any point, he didn't tell people where he was going and he didn't disclose that information over the phone. Okay. So that is something that he used to do. Yes. Okay. So it would make sense in a way that she wouldn't know where he was. Yeah. Also works totally in her favor right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so by mid-September, customers are also calling. People are getting like really heated. His mom and him and his brother would talk like every few days and they haven't talked since September 8th, his birthday. And his brother's birthday is only a few days later and it's very weird that he didn't call for his brother's birthday. So everyone's getting concerned and so she tells everybody that she had talked to him recently and that he was going to be home on September 20th. So they're all waiting for September 20th to happen. And on the 20th, seven calls were made from Jay's phone to friends and business associates. In each one, the person who received the call heard a few seconds of the Rush Limbaugh show, which is a radio program that Jay listened to religiously. And then there was a hang up. So they didn't hear Jay. They didn't hear anything. They couldn't hear anyone but the Rush Limbaugh show. And when they tried to call him back, he didn't answer. That's so weird. Mm-hmm. On September 22nd, spurred by Jay's family, Marjorie finally files a missing person report. So Detective Jan Butcher takes over the case, and Marjorie claims to have last spoke to Jay on September 17th. So she says, basically, you know, Jan Butcher does a preliminary interview with her. And she says, like, okay, are you having an affair? Marjorie says no, of course. Of course. (laughs) She's like, is he having an affair? And she, like, starts laughing and... Jan Butcher's like, okay, why are you laughing? And she's like, oh, he medically can't have an affair. Uh, an affair. He's impotent. Oh my god! I don't know why she would say that? You know, she's so offended and- from the first time they had sex. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> so Detective Butcher actually goes to his doctor at some point, and his doctor's like, he's not impotent, or at least he never told me he was. Like, he's not medically ever said he needs any help. Weird. Yeah, she also tells her that the jewelry and art dealing business is seedy and shady and that there's probably a bunch of people who are like after him. Weird. So she and she also reconfirms what I told you what she's told her her family and friends which is that she has no idea where he went and it's common for her to not know where her husband is when he's on the road. So Monday, September 27th, she allows Detective Butcher and Jay's family to search the warehouse but not the house. The white cargo van is at the warehouse. The Bronco is missing. So he had been out with the white cargo van for his trip to Florida. Okay. And and so then Detective Butcher is like, okay, so he must have come home. And she's like, he never came to our house. Maybe he stopped at the warehouse to switch out some goods and he left using the Bronco. And she's like, well, is it normal that he would use the Bronco when he's on a business trip? And she said occasionally if it was a short trip. Okay. So she's covering all her bases. She's covering all of the bases. And at that point also, she tries to get Detective Butcher to intervene with Jay's mother. So all of the people who love Jay are acting like normal human beings would when their loved one is missing. So they're like aghast because she's not doing anything other than like she contacted the police. And so the mom gets the client list and what she's doing is trying to call all of his clients to see if anyone's seen him, you know? Yep. 
And she's really frustrated that Marjorie didn't do it first. So his mom's like literally on the phone all day trying to find out if any, anyone's seen him. And Marjorie is so angry with her. And she gets Detective Butcher and she's like, can you stop her from doing this? Because we have $300,000 of receivables out. And if they know he's missing, they're not going to pay us. I don't That's get how these how these partners can't just keep their cool. Like it's so money yeah, focused. Just dummy up. Yeah. Just shut up. Like, this is crazy. So, of course, Detective Butcher's like, okay, yeah, you definitely had something to do with this. She also, like, the only thing she took from the warehouse that day they were all there is, like, all of the life insurance paperwork. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. She's being quite obvious. Suspicious so the Sally. Orbans, mm-hmm. The Orbans hire a private eye who doesn't uncover much. Um, the only thing they do is so weird for a private eye, like, hires a psychic who says that um, – he was killed in the warehouse and that his body will be found in pieces around the desert. Stop. So she did get at least part of it right. Maybe Whoa. more. Mm-hmm. And then also the private eye finds out that Marjorie has been married six times before Jay and tells the family. Oh, so they're like, what the hell? He also tells them that she only has one sister. So they are like only at this point finding out that she has lied about everything. Her hair is just full of lies. Uh Her nose is huge. (laughs) The family is just completely stunned. And they tell, you know, Detective Butcher about all this. Butcher discovers that someone has been withdrawing $500 a day from Jay's accounts. He's like checking in his savings. Okay. The maximum allowed amount every single day since September 13th. Whoa. So she didn't declare him missing until September 22nd. Yeah, even though so she, she was he died on the mm-hmm. 8th or whatever. So crazy. Exactly. So of course she subpoenas the bank ATM camera and lo and behold, it's Marjorie oh of course. Oh my god, these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So equally damning is that she contacts the Arizona Department of Public Safety to find out where the Bronco has been potentially sighted in the city and finds out that it had been sighted in two different locations between September 19th and September 25th and that eyewitnesses report the driver as a tall, thin woman with platinum blonde hair. Stop. So annoyingly later on, those two eyewitnesses – do they fail to recognize her in a photo lineup? Oh my god, so annoying! Yeah, one guy picked the wrong woman, and the other woman said she could not pick any of the women with certainty. Ugh. Yeah. So even though they organically described exactly Marjorie, it wouldn't be usable in court. Crazy. Hmm. So on September 28th, Marjorie goes out and buys herself a $10,000 baby grand piano. What? (laughs) Because that makes sense when your husband is missing. (laughs) And of course, puts it on Jay's credit card. He must have good credit card limits, this guy. Wow. Because we're at like Uh, 16,000 right now. Yeah. She is like, but with everything that she's done, she's got to be pushing 20. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she spends the day shopping and dodging Detective Butcher's calls. And when Detective Butcher finally gets her on the phone, they end up fighting about why she's not being more helpful and how it's very unusual in a missing person's case to have a spouse that's so unhelpful and yep. is not returning calls. So Detective Butcher's like, this doesn't look good for you. You nope. need to cooperate with this investigation. 
and she gets super pissy about it and starts like kind of fighting with Detective Butcher, which is not what you should do when you are potentially being suspected for your spouse's disappearance. Yeah, horrible. Mm-hmm. So Detective Butcher tells her that she wants her to come in the next day for a polygraph. Okay. And at this point, um, she turns off the f- – like she's saying to somebody else, she wants me to take a polygraph. And a male voice says, tell her to go fuck herself. So Butcher's like, um, who's that? And Marjorie goes, none of your fucking business. It's my friend, Okay. Wow. At that point, Detective Butcher had no idea about Larry or even her other affair. And now she basically gave herself away because she's like, okay, I already know she's got some aggressive male in the house with her, you know. And so she's like, okay, well, if you want to help your husband, you need to come in. And she just keeps calling Jay, her husband, and like bringing home the point that, you know, this is truly – terrible and her husband is missing and she goes he's not my fucking husband anyway and so detective butcher's like what excuse me and she's like yeah we got divorced years ago so the big bombshell (laughs) no but seriously apparently when they got into that financial thing the only answer was to get divorced oh my god so no one knew they didn't want anyone to know So basically she is extra boned about the marital assets because they're not marital assets. Oh my God. So then the – what about the life insurance policy? So the life insurance, she is absolutely the beneficiary. So by signing the divorce papers, she had unwisely entrapped herself. So with the divorce, if she left Jay, she wouldn't be entitled to little more than child support. All of the assets and accounts and the company were solely in his name. So she wouldn't have – if she had divorced him, she wouldn't have gotten anything of it. Plus, it would have only looked like they were married for like a year or two. Yeah. So she wouldn't have been able to prove that she had helped him build the business or anything, you know? Yeah, yeah. She was, however, the primary beneficiary on his life insurance policy, and he had make her he had made her privy to the fact that in his will, even though they're not legally married, everything was to go to her. Of course, yeah, because mother of his son. Wow. Exactly. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he is worth so much more to her dead than alive. Crazy. Also, I feel like she's kind of a dummy for either – not disclosing that earlier or then disclosing it in this random moment of anger, you know? Yeah, that everything she does is – it's so off the cuff. It seems just – Yeah, she's not thinking straight. No. So that same evening, uh, Detective Butcher decides that enough is enough and she had kept dodging being able to search the house. So she sends a SWAT team in to the house. So it bursts through the door at 8.45 and Larry – physically starts fighting the SWAT team. Oh my God. These two. Like like an insane person. Well, Marjorie is screaming for them to not disturb her son who's up in his bedroom. So they have to like physically tase Larry and he keeps fighting. So they tase him twice and then eventually slam his face into the ground and cuff him. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So Marjorie was on the phone with Jay's brother at the time. So she yells for him to come over and grab Noah and then they cuff Marjorie too and they produce a search warrant so they can search the house. Okay. So eventually they like – when she comes down they uncuff her when they realize she's not gonna 
you know, do anything. Yeah. So they find no smoking gun during the search. And for the next few weeks, the investigation stalls until Detective Butcher tells Marjorie that if Jay's body is never found, it would be seven years before she's able to collect the insurance money. That's amazing. So she doesn't really do this tactically. She's just somehow the topic of life insurance money comes up and she's like, you know, if we don't find Jay's body, like if he's truly just out in the wind, you're not going to be able to collect the insurance money for a long time. And lo and behold, only a few <laughs> a few weeks later, it's like a couple weeks later, exactly 45 days after he went missing, Jay's dismembered torso was discovered in the Northeast Phoenix desert. Wow. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously a suspicion that Butcher had planted a seed that she decided to let something be found of him. His belly button. His belly button. <laughs> so the same day, Jay's Bronco was found less than four miles away from the Orban's home. So I don't know where she or they were hiding that too, but it seems like the same day it's discovered. Oh, that's tricky. Yep. After the discovery of the torso, the police search Marjorie's home again, as well as the warehouse and Larry's house. So Larry's home turns up absolutely nothing except for some steroids, which <laughs> might explain why he attacked the SWAT team. 100%. Uh-huh. All roided up. Yep. And Marjorie's is as clean as a whistle due to the recently epoxy-coated and painted garage. But they do find a white drug substance cut up into lines on a mirror in her closet, which ends up being meth. Whoa. Yeah. So she was she was high on the meth. That explains all the erratic behavior for sure. Yeah. And the crazy cleaning. Yeah. <laughs> In the warehouse, they find blood and an open pack of skilled jigsaw blades, which is Ooh. would be yeah corresponding with the electric saw. Um, and there's two missing out of the pack. So they subpoena Larry, Marjorie, and Jay's phone records. And Larry has Verizon. And at the time, Verizon only keeps records for 30 days. Okay. It's beyond that 30-day window. So unfortunately, they can't track Larry's whereabouts. But Marjorie and Jay have AT&T, which keeps records for 90 days. Okay. So they have their records and they find out that Jay's phone never left Phoenix. So obviously he didn't go anywhere. Yeah. He never, you know. And they find um, one little bit of damning evidence is that on September 20th, the day that all of those hang-up phone calls happened. Yeah. Marjorie's phone was also used to call Larry and a friend, and her phone pinged in exactly the same places that Jay's did while he was making those calls. Yeah. So she was driving around making those calls from Jay's phone, and then in between the calls, Call- calling. So dumb. Mm-hmm. So dumb. <laughs> So now they know it's Marjorie, but they're still struggling to prove it. They don't have DNA, an eyewitness, or any type of surefire evidence. So they're interviewing everyone they can and just gathering intel on Marjorie. So they interview Janice, the woman who was harassed by Marjorie. Yep. Who recommends they talk to a woman named Jan Biso, who's a neighbor. And on that night, apparently Marjorie went over and asked if Noah could spend the night, which had never happened. She was like an insanely protective mom and she literally never let Noah do sleepovers anywhere or have even have a babysitter. She was that crazy. Yeah. And one night on a school night, she shows up and is like, hey, can Noah spend the night? September 8th. And it was September 16th. Okay. So I'm thinking that she must have killed him and then put his body in a freezer and then that was the night she actually dismembered him. Yeah. 
So they have the sleepover, but the friend thinks it's very bizarre because um, she doesn't – like at one point, I think Noah tries to call her and she's like doesn't answer or something. It's very weird. Yep. And the next morning, they realize that she hasn't packed a shirt for him to go to school. And when they show up, she's visibly frazzled and she looks like she hasn't been sleeping. Okay. Is that mess? So she finds this sh- – yeah. It's, it's all that mess <laughs> night. Um and then they go and interview everyone at the karate school who encourage them, <laughs> encourage the officers to talk to Sharon Franco. And oh boy, does Sharon have a lot to say. So she says that um, Marjorie would say things like, Jay is so lucky, nothing has ever happened to him, like an accident or a robbery. Someone's got to cut that fucker's break soon rather than later. Like, she would say all this stuff about wishing that Jay would have an accident. She told him that he was disgusting and she hated him and that she never wanted to sleep with him and that he could barely get it up anyway. Like, she had said all of these terrible things about him to Sharon. And she even once asked Sharon if she knew somebody who would kill him for her. Oh, my God. And Sharon was like, okay, you could just get a divorce. That's what I did for my ex-husband and just, like, laughed it off because they were, like, drinking. Um, but she's like, in retrospect, I don't think it was a joke, obviously. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and Josiah is also interviewed, but he denies a sexual relationship with Marjorie. And this ends up getting him in huge hot water because he always wanted to be a police officer. So months later, he's at the police academy in Phoenix. And I guess they did some polygraph drill where one of the questions is, have you ever lied to the police? And he has to admit the affair. And because of that, they kick him out of the police academy and bar him from ever entering the Phoenix PD. And he has to tell Sharon why. She still didn't think they actually had an affair. She thought that Marjorie was lying. Are they still together? Still together. It gets even weirder. When we get to the trial, they're married. Oh, my God. She married this guy. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So that's just another person ruined – their life is ruined by Marjorie's involvement in it. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So Detective Barnes's theory is that Jay was shot upon returning home September 8th in his garage with a three fifty seven Smith & Wesson. His brother Jake had given him the gun, and it was now missing from the home. This type of gun would be consistent with a thirty eight caliber bullet that was found in the tub. So he's not sure if it was just Marjorie or if Marjorie had Larry do it. Then the body was frozen, and Marjorie cleaned, epoxied, and painted the garage that weekend. Yep. At some point, the thawed body is transferred to the warehouse, potentially September 16th, while Noah was sleeping over at the neighbor's. There, the plastic sheeting that was found with the body was laid down. And Marjorie or Larry used the jigsaw electric saw to dismember the body and place the pieces. Gnarly. Mm-hmm. Gnarly. So Barnes and the medical examiner buy an identical pack of jigsaw blades and they test out the various blades on cadaver bones. And the two blades that are missing from the warehouse, they match perfectly the cut pattern with Jay's bones. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So the DA, the DA is still hesitant to arrest Marjorie without more concrete evidence, which they finally find in early December. A rookie cop is going through Jay's credit card records and then tracing them to the retail location to find the itemized receipts and security footage of Marjorie at the store. 
So the day after the murder, they have Marjorie on camera buying extensive cleaning supplies, rug shampoo, and a steam cleaner. But the real breakthrough comes at Lowe's, where they pull security footage of Marjorie alone buying two 55-gallon Rubbermaid tubs in the exact color and size as the one Jay had been found Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not only that, the UPC code on the receipt matches the UPC code on the makeshift casket. Oh, not the brightest blonde in the box. No. (laughs) She also bought a 9 by 12 roll of plastic, five-gallon garbage bags, both consistent with what was found at the scene, disinfectant, mop pads, and floor cleaner. With this evidence, they get a warrant, and Marjorie is arrested for the first-degree murder on December 6th. Finally. Finally. So, of course, she calls Michael J. Peter. (sighs) Uh. Oh, my God. Although Michael hasn't actually seen Marjorie in over a decade and they only spoke occasionally by phone, he comes to her rescue. He flew to Phoenix and personally met with her defense attorney, Tom Connolly. Without hesitation, Michael cut Connolly a check for $150,000. Crazy. With the promise of up to $400,000 for her defense. Wow. By the time the trial was concluded, one source reported he actually spent double that the total topping out near $800,000. So a million bucks he dropped. He spent a million bucks on an ex-girlfriend. Crazy. On her murder trial. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Michael spoke to Marjorie and assured her he would do anything he could help. He said, I love you and I believe in you. Do you think he Mm -hmm. thought that she killed him? I don't know. I don't think he did. Crazy. I mean, she was – telling people that she was getting railroaded and I think that he loved her enough to maybe believe it. Also, she had always been honest with him before, so why would he think she's lying now, you know? Meanwhile, the cops are pushing on Larry, who by then had broken up with Marjorie back in October. Like, Larry was like, dude, I got into this for, like, sex and a good time. I did not see this coming. (laughs) So he had broken up with her back in October. They offered him conditional immunity to get him to speak, basically saying, you're going to get immunity, but, like, it was conditional on how much information he gave. Of course, yeah. So he came across as believably innocent but coached by his attorney. And it appears he actually wasn't with Marjorie or at the home on or around September 8th because Marjorie had also told him she thought she was getting sick and he was coming down with the flu himself. So at least that's what he says. Okay. The police and the DA never do find enough evidence to charge Larry with any crime. Interesting. Yeah. I for sure the first time I heard about this case thought that he had something to do with it. And it was just her, huh? That's the only evidence they could find. Crazy. Just her. Mm Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, the Orban family had taken in Noah, who was doing well, all things considered. But they made a disturbing discovery a few weeks after Marjorie's arrest. Noah had been born with a small tuft of brown hair that matched his father's. But after a couple months, the hair had lightened into a practically platinum blonde hue. Well, when the Orbans are watching Noah, his hair starts to grow out brown again. Marjorie had been dyeing the child's hair since he was two months old. What? (laughs) That is psychotic. (laughs) That is insane. Who does that to a two-month-old baby? That is insane. I would be so disturbed if I found that out about my grandchild. I cannot. That is the most shocking thing you've said this entire podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I know. 
<laughs> I literally was, I was reading that and I was like, stop. That's <laughs> crazy. I had a feeling you were going to say that because she was so weird about the hair. But mm-hmm. wow. Oh, God. So Marjorie pleads not guilty and is shocked when the DA goes for the death penalty. So this is serious. Um, My ears are perked for sure. Yeah. (laughs) She ends up having a great time in prison, given all things. She's basically a celebrity and she talks often about her former high-flying lifestyle. And she ends up, you know, with no men in there, she ends up having several girlfriends. Of course she does. She turns to the ladies. She needs to get her love and attention somewhere. Yep. Mm-hmm. And she does craft projects. So she's actually kind of doing well in prison. Thriving. Yes, she's thriving in prison. <laughs> so meanwhile, detectives start receiving tips from all over the country, including one very interesting call, which I'm going to read to you from Dancing with Death as soon as my Kindle wakes up. One call of interest was from Marjorie's fifth husband, Ronald McMahon who contacted police with an alarming story. Toward the end of their two-year marriage, they argued constantly. During one particularly nasty fight, Ronald had threatened to kick Marjorie out of the house. The next day, Ronald heard Marjorie on the phone with a friend talking about how she planned to get rid of him by luring him into the bathtub and throwing a television set into the water. Oh my God. (laughs) A few days later, in the kitchen of the couple's home, Marjorie came up behind Ronald and hit him in the head with a frying pan. Ronald was dazed but remained conscious enough to defend himself. They divorced soon after. Ronald never reported the incident to the police. Oh my God. Psycho. Psycho. So that marriage was real bad. Wow. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why he let her take the fall on the 50 grand. Yeah. <laughs> Getting struck over the head with a frying pan will do that. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you know what? Let that bitch figure it out. <laughs> so the trial kept getting delayed. It was originally slated for April 2005, and it didn't start until January 2009. So she's in jail Whoa. for that entire time. Whoa. Mm-hmm. It was just mismanaged from the start. And finally, like when it does start even, for some reason, they only do four hours a day, four hour, uh, four days a week. So the trial stretch, stretches on almost a year. Wow. Yeah. So this is a long, long process. In January 2007, the Phoenix PD released the white cargo van to Jake, Jay's brother, who had been helping out with Jay's business. When he picks up the van, the front tire of the truck begins to squeal and he has to pull over. He realizes that the front wheel was completely turned inward and the truck was not drivable. Huh. And so he calls a mechanic and when the mechanic sees what's going on, he tells him to call the police. Okay. The detectives inspect the vehicle and determine that the tie rod, which is a piston that controls the steering on the front tires, has been cut. Hmm. So it looked like it had happened in the last few years and then rusted and broke loose. So they couldn't pinpoint exactly because the truck had just been sitting in the warehouse for so long and then in police impoundment. If it had been sliced with better precision, the rod would have likely broken loose on the road and resulted in a terrible crash. So they believe that Marjorie's first plan to get rid of him was to make it look like an accident. Yeah. Yeah. And so then when he came home in one piece, she was just frustrated and just did him in then. Crafty bitch. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they made a really good point, like, that she didn't even consider who else he might have killed in that accident. Of course not. Yeah. No. It's not her MO. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) 
So like I said, the trial finally begins in January 2009 and stretches on for nearly a year. Marjorie's defense is that Larry did it. So that's what they're going with. Basically, she says that Jay came home unexpectedly, found Larry's car in the garage. They both happened to be in the garage at the same time. A fight ensued. Larry shot him. She ran into the garage when Jay was already dead. Larry told her to go in the house and he was going to take care of it. Oh, my God. So she's saying she didn't have anything to do with the murder. She didn't have anything to do with the disposal. The only thing she did wrong was not alert the authorities and help him cover up the crime. And she said she did that because he threatened her and her son's life. She's going this so route. That's her story. So the other thing that they say is basically like how could a woman who weighs like 135 pounds lift a guy who weighs like 250 pounds yeah and take care of his body and the big the big play is that she's like this tiny skinny woman but there was people that had worked out at the gym with her that said that she could like bench like over her own weight and it didn't help the case that in jail she had gained over 50 pounds. So she actually was like a lot taller than both of her attorneys. How did she gain so, that much weight in jail? That's crazy. I think it's just like starchy food. Okay. Also, she probably wasn't getting access to meth or Ritalin anymore. Yeah. I've heard that the food in prison is very carb heavy. Crazy. Yeah. So it didn't, it didn't really help their case because the jury wasn't seeing – a tiny little showgirl. Yeah. They were seeing like a woman who's 5'8 and weighs like, you know, maybe a buck 80 yeah. who's like, you know, looks like potentially she could do it, you know, yeah. especially if she's like on meth, you get that meth power. Yep. So they also know she's using meth at the time. So there's good answers to all of that, you know. Okay. So the prosecution gave Larry full immunity for his testimony, but there wasn't anything that was – like he wasn't there when it happened. There was nothing that he said that was like really mind-blowing other than comments she made to him about how um, Jay was supposed to be moving out soon and how she couldn't wait to get him out of her life and like how she wanted to move on with Larry and they were going to move in together and potentially get married and all this stuff. His testimony just testimony just spoke to her future plans and her disdain for Jay, you know? Yeah. So the Orbans all testified for the prosecution – um, about Marjorie's bizarre behavior. And of course, they also got Sh Janice and Sharon and Josiah all to testify against her and her behavior too. Okay. And the prosecution also got a cellmate of hers to say that she had admitted it in prison, which is interesting, but it seemed like there might have been, even though they said there wasn't a deal, she had like two different detectives and somebody who worked in the prison recommend to the judge on her case that she was released from from whatever she had done. So even though they say there wasn't a technical deal that there was made, and that's why she said that Marjorie said this, it looked like there was some type of underhanded deal that went on and she got out of jail. Okay. Yeah. So so there's some speculation on whether that testimony was true. Yeah. So Marjorie's only character witness throughout the trial was Michael J. Peter. Okay. <laughs> he testified that she wouldn't have hurt a spider. And he said that in the summer of 2004, he started questioning his life. He was in his mid-50s and never married. He said that he begged Marjorie to come back to him, but she refused. She said she wanted to be with him, but she would never take her child away from her father. 
So essentially the defense made a big deal about this being like Michael J. Peter has a ton of money and he would have taken her. So she had no financial reason to murder Jay if she had somebody who would take care of her and was already like a multimillionaire. Yeah. But that's if you believe that he actually did that and that he didn't make it up after the fact to help her case. Of course, yeah. So – September 14th, 2009, more than five years after Jay Orban was killed, after a week of deliberation, the jury reached a guilty verdict. Death penalty? So then they have to do sentencing. So they say she's guilty. And then they – at the sentencing, they have like a small sentencing trial and they get everyone who's affected by the crime to come in and talk about what they believe she should be sentenced for. Yep. And – the Orbans didn't think she should necessarily get the death penalty, but they did speak to, you know, the fact that Noah doesn't have a father and how they will never get another holiday with him and all of the stuff that you would say when you're really missing somebody that yeah. was taken away from you. And he has like tons of people, all of the people whose life he touched and all of his friends come in and she only has two letters. She doesn't even have anyone come for her in person of to course. speak to her. And the two letters, one was from her sister and was just like very lukewarm. And the other one was from her old manager from Church Street Station who wrote that she had been a good employee two decades before. Yikes. So she had not made herself friends in the last couple decades. Man, girlfriend. Yeah. So that was how – basically that's exactly what they heard before they went into sentencing and the jury recommended and the judge upheld uh, life in prison without the possibility of parole. Cool. I feel good about that. Which is good. Everyone was happy with that because even the Orban said like we just wanted to get a guilty verdict. We don't want her to die. We don't want, you know, Noah to not have a mom, you know. Yeah. So she is still in prison. She appealed as recently as 2016, but the sentence of life imprisonment was upheld. Jake Orban Jr. and his wife raised Noah, who is now a grown brunette, (laughs) not a blonde, (laughs) who is a veteran of the U.S. Army, and he now runs a company called Veteran Protection that provides security services from military vets. And he also runs his father's business, Jayhawk Trader, according to his LinkedIn. So cool. Jayhawk Trader lives on, and it sounds like Noah's doing really well for himself. Good. Yeah. So Michael J. Peter is still running his strip club empire. Oh, my God. Um, I could not find any evidence that he ever married. So I think he's – Lone you know, Wolf. Lone Wolf, still a playboy. Um, he last opened a mega, like, stripperplex called the New Solid Gold in Fort Lauderdale. And he boasted uh, over the press release that he's done over $5 billion in career sales. Jesus, what a brilliant So let man. me tell you, tell you about this new place. So according to the press release, this is what the New Solid Gold is like. Um, this was This came out in 2017. Okay. The new solid gold is known for its futuristic underwater-themed wet lounge with Florida's only jacuzzi suites. The upcoming rooftop sky lounge featuring 360-degree immersive panoramic projections, ultra jacuzzi cabanas, the glass pool, the chrome water slide where servers will slide down. 
<laughs> will slide down to serve their signature sexy cocktails and VIP bottles, the foam deck for the largest rooftop foam party, Ew. and the zip line where performers zip in and aerialists fly. Oh, my God. Oh, it goes on. It goes on. While many guests prefer this cool ultra lounge and the roof, no experience would be complete without a visit to the Red Room. This indulgent experience provides guests with a unique chance to experience their ultimate fantasy with mistresses Nikki and Alexis in control. So the Red Room is a dungeon. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. The king of the gentleman's club has decided to take the lap dance he created – He's also taking credit for lap dances. All right, that's pushing it. That's pushing it, Michael. That's pushing it there, MJP. Um, Taz decided to take the lap dance he created up a few thousand notches with the release of the bed dance. Guests will be restrained or set free to enjoy the ultimate pleasure of freedom of a wait, the ultimate pleasure and freedom of a bed, silk sheets, and a golden pretzel at the end. What's a golden pretzel? Is that like a euphemism for some sex act? The golden pretzel. I don't want to know what that is. Fans of Michael J. Peter Gentlemen's Clubs have a lot to look forward to as the legend lives on, all in caps. Oh my God. Is that on his website? Um, it was a press release okay. uh, for all of Florida. Um, yes. And so the last thing I want to – well, there's two things I want to share. One is I looked up the Yelp reviews for this place. Oh God, please. <laughs> and the, I chose one positive review for this multiplex, which he said, by the way, he said that this place is a $10 million stripping complex. Sounds it. Yeah. So this is James E. said five months ago, which they he shouldn't have been going to a strip club five months ago. It was right before pre-COVID. <laughs> it was right before, yeah. <laughs> um, he said, working very hard and succeeding, five stars. I was served one of the best ahi tuna appetizers I have ever eaten. Ew. Ew. <laughs> Service was on par as well. Very clean and comfortable. I was served generous pours. Could have used a little more blue tone. I don't know what that means. Like lighting? I guess lighting. <laughs> the entertainers were young and beautiful. Perhaps too shy. I was not hustled. Light years beyond other solid golds I have visited. Good job. I will return, period. <laughs> So that was a positive one. Then I um I found the new solid gold in Jacksonville, Florida before I looked up the multiplex. Um so this is a different club. This is for Jacksonville. Okay. And um this, this one made me laugh. It's a one-star review from one year ago. This okay. is another James. This is James W. He okay. says it's a shithole with an asshole manager. They will take your money and lie to your face. They stole $800 from me. I hope they get something Ajax won't take off. So, oh, so I guys, love it when men say that they got robbed at strip clubs, <laughs> I, know. I know I can't even with this. So, yeah, if you've ever been to one of his solid gold clubs, please tell us how your experience oh my God, was. Please. Mm-hmm. And then, lastly, how is Marjorie doing in prison? Well, other than not winning her appeals. She is busy with write a prisoner and her dating profile. Uh huh. Oh my god! So she has three pictures up, and they are all from the eighties. So she has not updated her picture in nearly forty years. Oh my god! 
And do you want to hear her profile? Yes. Growing up in Miami, Florida, the sunshine and water were a big part of my life. Playing on the beaches, diving, surfing, sailing, playing beach volleyball. The little girl in ballet class was the start of a lifelong love of dance. I had quite a career as a professional dancer and choreographer, from Disney World to cruise ships in Las Vegas shows, Paris, Japan, Germany, even dancing on rock videos, Motley Crue, Girls, Girls, Girls. Traveling all over the world, I had many exciting adventures. Then, dot, 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 one unforeseen incident changed everything. Oh, my God. That's brutal. But even now, I do my best to be positive and create a meaningful life for myself. I am strong and healthy and active. I teach aerobics classes. I am tall, slender, and have long blonde hair. I have a pretty silly sense of humor sometimes. I read, watch trashy TV, and stay out of drama. <laughs> you I dismembered miss- your husband. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're a messy bitch. I miss traveling, good food, the ocean, interesting friends, and romance. I would love to meet new friends from the real world that might share their adventures or maybe just talk. Please write to me directly, Marjorie. Wow. Yep, so if anyone's into being catfished by Marjorie, <laughs> straight, you up. Can, straight up, you can reach out to her. Just look her up on rightofprisoner.com. Wow. In closing, don't gamble away your life savings on high lie. Just think a bit before you buy your baby grand piano. And, of course, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Murdered.